Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. It's Space Day. That's right. Space Night or Space Morning. It all depends on your perspective and your time zone. But the one thing is for sure, we're going to talk space in what has become one of our most popular hours. A bi-weekly tradition continues where we're going to tap into the expertise of Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky. Now, what a week to be able to tap into the expertise of someone who has Sky in their title even if it is an honorary one. Everyone was looking up in the sky this week, either directly or through a television set, at this balloon that was floating all over the continent. What does it mean? We'll get into it. But if you have questions about anything having to do with astronomy, space, sky, we we are going to give you an opportunity to ask the go-to guy, Dr. Sky, 800-848-9222. If this is the first time you're hearing Dr. Sky, he is a veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer, and he has a great deal of expertise in astronomy and space. And he also has the Dr. Sky Experience podcast, which you could check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. There's nothing like it. It is terrific. And on top of that... He has the best voice in all of radio, and I include myself in that comparison. Steve, it is always a treat to talk with you. Thanks, as always, for staying up late with us. Well, good morning, Frank. Good to be with you and the listeners in our bi-monthly event here as we talk about, always we say what? Always remember to keep your eyes to the skies, and even in a more lighthearted way, hey, if it's in the sky, I'm your guy. How about that? Well, so uh, to me, right, so you say bi-monthly, which would mean it occurs Uh, twice a month. I say right. bi-weekly because there it occurs every other week. Is it both bi-weekly and bi-monthly? I guess we could say that that is every two weeks. There you go. There you I'm go. Happy All to right. Be with you. <laughs> the big story, as I alluded to, is this uh, situation. Um, this 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 situation involving the balloon. I know yes. you have studied this. You have looked at this. I have some pretty specific questions about the implications of this and what happened in this particular instance. But kind of give me your bird's eye view from 50,000 feet as to how this whole affair was handled and what exactly occurred. Well, happy to do it, Frank. You know, over the years, I've observed, like many, maybe the listeners out there, these different balloons that are stratospheric balloons and beyond. And here in Phoenix, we've had the opportunity and privilege to report on local television for years when meteorological balloons were sent up, and just describe some of these, out of Palestine, Texas, and other locations around the country. Scientists send up these balloons that look like these long, you know, elongated-type balloons, and as they rise up into the atmosphere, the heat of the sun makes these things grow large. 
Now, some of these get up to about 120,000 feet. So lo and behold, one time in Phoenix, people were describing this. You could go outside, look up in the sky, and see this thing brighter than the planet Venus, easy to see. So here we go. I take the telescope, and I look at it, and I can see a payload hanging from the bottom of it. Well, that wasn't a Chinese uh, reconnaissance or surveillance balloon of any kind. But the story on this is it's been reported in the news, and this is the best I can give you. But I have a little backstory here that, I, of course, I want to share with the audience. We find out that this balloon, the military doesn't tell us everything, obviously. But what they do tell us is the balloon was first spotted as it was moving over the Aleutian Islands, you know, way up there near Alaska. And that particularly happened on January the 28th. Then the balloon, as, as it continued to move, Many believe that it has maneuverability or capabilities not just to drift, but actually had some sort of way to be maneuverable in the sky. Then we find out it goes over Canada. And then over Idaho on January the 31st, then we find out that the balloon is over Billings, Montana on February the 1st. Well, the question would be asked, well, if it's invading our airspace, why didn't they shoot it down? And there's many stories about this pro and con. The pro of shooting it down is it violates U.S. airspace. The problematic you know, con on that is, well, if you do that, they were claiming that it might land on inhabited areas, but the payload probably would have been destroyed if it was shot down. So we find out, here's a backstory that I don't think many people know. Two F-22s from the first fighter squadron out of Langley Air Force Base, their motto in Latin is out vincere out mori, and translating that into simple English, their mission statement says conquer or die. They happen to have one of the largest, if not the largest, F-22 Raptor, you know, collection for the entire military. But what's interesting about this, and it goes right to your name, the call signs of this particular series, two of these F-22s, were Frank-1 and Frank-2. How about that? So these particular aircraft, we find out, as the balloon drifts over toward the Atlantic Ocean, they find out that they're going to take, you know, one of their aircraft is going to shoot down this particular, you know, balloon. But why Frank 1 and Frank 2? And this is a fascinating story here. It's actually an honor, we believe, and I believe it strongly. They haven't officially said this. In memory of Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr., who was he? It has a lot of connection here to Arizona where I'm at. He was, of course, the Arizona balloon buster of World War I. Hmm. He shot down 14, how about this, 14 German balloons with these very primitive, but in many ways very effective, biplanes of World War I. So that's the namesake. Now, I'm about four miles from Luke Air Force Base. And if you go out there, if people visit it, you know, on days when you can go in there to see the tour, you'll see a statue in honor of this lieutenant, an amazing man himself who did so much. So the military, that's what they're saying, uh, not officially, but that's the story that we're getting, that this was, of course, the call signs Frank I and Frank II, in honor of Lieutenant Frank Luke Jr. I find that fascinating. Absolutely. This is something that the media doesn't talk about. I mean, I have yet to hear this, and I think we're breaking some news here and making some news. But let's go back to what happened. The F-22 itself. Now, I don't know. Have you ever seen, Frank, the F-22 at an air show or ever see it perform? No, no, I have. And, you know, I don't know if it's ever been at the Atlantic City Air Show, but I'm guessing right. not. Don't know that. But we were friends with a guy named Max Moga. And who's Max Moga? He was the leader of the F-22 Raptor demo team. So we got to talk to these people because, you know, our sister website that people can go to is simply photorecon.net. My brother and his team do mm -hmm. amazing photography as, you know, pro photographers at air shows. So the bottom line is we get to meet Max Moga. A lot of people did on the flight line. And we were watching this F-22 demo about five years ago. Frank, 
I have never seen in my life. This thing looks like it has alien technology on it. When it takes off, they have these amazing, powerful Pratt & Whitney F-119 engines, each of them in maximum afterburner, about 35,000 pounds of thrust. But the bottom line on this, when you see, and many listeners I'm sure have seen this, I've seen this F-22 in the demo. It goes up, it arcs up into the sky, and it seems like it stands still. And I'm not making this up. Never would try here at all. It seems like it can back up in the sky. It's, that's the illusion or whatever. And then it did a low-speed pass. And what it did, I don't know if they were supposed to do this, but it opened up the pod doors underneath where the missiles are. And that's usually some classified stuff. So lo and behold, we get on the ground, and we try to take some pictures of this on the flight line. And myself and my brother immediately stopped by the security people there, the MP, saying, do not take pictures of the front end of this aircraft. Well, I gather there's a lot of secret and sensitive stuff there. But the point of the matter is, going back to this incident here with the balloon, it's fascinating, is that the good folks down in South Carolina who had a bird's eye view of this, and we see all the videos out there, you know, whether they're on Twitter or on Facebook or wherever, on the news, Allegedly, what happened is this particular aircraft was up in altitude. So the F-22, I don't know the maximum ceiling of this. It's probably classified. But they simply could fly up to that altitude. But what we know, and the simplest way to explain it this morning, is that they fired this AIM-9 missile. Now, we don't know for sure if it was an, actually an explosive missile. It might very well, and this is something we don't know yet. But this is where aviation experts are throwing this out. It probably was a kinetic missile. What's that? It's a missile that would basically just puncture the, miss puncture the balloon, excuse me, instead of having a massive explosion. Because if you've ever seen one of these AIM-9 missiles go off, you've seen these in, like, you know, dogfights in, in movies. The aircraft that they hit it with is literally obliterated. So the point is they don't want to obliterate that payload package. But I have another interesting story about this, if we have some time on this. Apparently, we're getting some information here. And I'm trying to get absolute confirmation of this, but this is what I'm reading here. And again, we don't believe everything on the Internet. So what we're finding out is the American military has some incredible aircraft, these spy planes, as we call them, going back to the days of the Kennedy administration with the U-2 aircraft developed by Lockheed and Kelly Johnson, who also helped develop the SR-71. We're reading that the U-2R spy planes called Dragon Ladies were actually up in flight in around these particular, or this particular balloon. So literally, they could fly up that high. The pilot on this particular single-seat aircraft, the U-2R, he wears a spacesuit, just like you would as if you were an astronaut, because look at how high that aircraft can go. So we're getting information that says that this particular platform, the U-2R, which is a very sophisticated airplane, it has all these bubbles and blisters, as they call them, sitting on the side. There's a lot of electronic jamming equipment on there. One of the packages is called Senior Glass. It's a signal intelligence platform. Now, this gets real technical. It also has the capability of providing what they call synthetic aperture radar. What can that do? It can penetrate the ground, but it also has the jamming capability. So what we're hearing is, and I can't get a confirmation of this, but in, in the aerospace industry, you're hearing all this chatter that those aircraft, the U-2Rs, the Dragon Ladies, as they're called, they were snooping on the balloon. They could actually fly up and near that and even higher. They could look down on that particular balloon. So don't always believe everything what we're hearing in regular traditional media that, you know, well, they just let it float over the United States. It may indeed mm. have been observed above that particular balloon and no need to shoot it down because we may have had the capability, more than likely, of jamming 
the signal. Interesting. That well, that's that's interesting. So let's say that's the case, mm-hmm. right? And mm-hmm. obviously, Excuse I'm me. speculating. It sounds right, like yeah. you're you're coming from a, a more informed position, but mm-hmm. let's say they could uh, block and this uh, surveillance balloon, if that's what it was. The Chinese mm-hmm. are still claiming it was a uh, right. weather balloon, but let's say it was a surveillance balloon and we could yes. block it. Um, why then do you think that the Biden administration made the decision to shoot it down? Do you think they kind of caved to the political pressures of the punditocracy and the, the politicians all saying shoot it down, shoot it down? Why did they shoot it down? At well, that here's point? the answer. I think if those U-2 are, you know, flights are real, and obviously we don't doubt the capability of these U-2 are spy planes called Dragon Ladies – they may have been able, we hope, I mean, from the American side, we don't want to be snooped on, they're violating airspace. So maybe the, the reason they didn't shoot it down then was they had enough information off of this platform to say, hey, whatever they're sending out, because remember, this balloon more than likely wasn't just, where was it transmitting? Think about this, right? It's transmitting information up to Chinese satellites more than likely. Where else is it going to send information? So the reason they probably didn't shoot it down, and this is just my guess, guess an educated one at that, is that they probably recognized that whatever was doing at that particular time, maybe we didn't catch early, catch it early enough, but the reason they wanted to shoot it down, they figured this way, let, let it go into the water, because if you drop a payload like that from, let's say, over Billings, Montana, when it hits the ground, you're going to actually fracture all the electronic equipment. The water that it supposedly went down into off the coast of South Carolina is only about 47 feet deep. So it's not deep ocean. And we obviously know that there's crews out there, you know, Navy and military intelligence. And I believe they actually have some pieces of this that are actually being sent over to the FBI laboratory in Quantico, Virginia. But it's fascinating, don't you think, about how this balloon and these balloons are not just this, not the singular balloon. Mm -hmm. But, Frank, here's another one. And I'm not a conspiracy guy at all. But here's something that I'm reading also that has some interest of this, you know, in, in the aviation community. It makes sense. That it's possible, don't think I'm off the wall here, I'm just repeating what I'm reading here, that this particular balloon, surveillance balloon, may have dropped what's called cicada or locust small transmitting devices. That if it did indeed go over Maelstrom Air Force Base, and what's that? That's part of our triad or our nuclear defense. We're in the ground, Minuteman missiles and crews, you know, you see a lot of movies where you have to have two people turn the key and we see a lot of crazy movies where one person doesn't want to turn the, you know, the, the key sure, to right. launch the nuclear missile. There is some speculation. I'm, I'm going to go way off on the deep end on this. I'm not saying I can prove it. But China has developed an amazing array of military d- drone swarms. There are these devices that come out like a stack. And you've seen, I think, some of these movies. I can't think of one. It was a, a movie in which uh, Morgan Freeman, I think, was in, where they had this big drone attack where they actually had, you know, explosive devices on it, and thousands of these drones came out. But not to get sci-fi-ish here. What if? That was uh, Angel Has Fallen with Gerard Butler, too. A very entertaining picture. Absolutely. Very interesting movie. But let me just say this in conclusion here. Again, I'm not the expert on this particular topic, but in the aviation world, I think we're providing some information, don't you think, that most people don't even know about, and I'm glad to do it. But these particular devices could have been dropped. And if they were, let's hope that, you know, what what is this cicada? It's an insect that, what, burrows into the ground. Right. And they look kind of ugly if you're not a fancier of of insects. And they kind of stay in the ground for a long period of time. So the bottom line is, what about the possibility? And who knows? Maybe this is true. Maybe it's not. 
But another thing, these cicada-type or locust devices, China has developed some incredible technology. So what would they be? Little devices that penetrate the ground that you can listen as a listening post or whatever, or a transmitter. I don't know, but that's what that, that's what also is speculation on these type of technologies. Well, so what is the the basis for that speculation? I'm all for uh, exploring that possibility sure. because it's really interesting. But right. uh, is is there anybody kind of speculating about that publicly? The possibility of these surveillance cicadas being dropped from this, these balloon this balloon? Well, there's a bunch of you know internet information. Again, mm-hmm. I don't believe everything I read. But if you follow some of these websites, there's some of them that are very, very good, and they really get into what I consider where I'm getting the information on this whole you know, uh, story about the U2Rs, is a website called The Drive. Just go to it, TheDrive. Mm. No, I do check out it. There's some great stuff yeah. on there, actually. And is, And I, we both agree that that's a source that I think is pretty credible, don't you think? Oh, no, right. no, no. They, they, uh, they really do dig deep, and they've been ahead of the curve on uh, a lot of stuff. They sure do. You, you mentioned the uh, F-22 and uh, the advanced technology of it and how impressive it is to, uh, to look at and see in action. And how uh, I think you characterize it as you feel like uh, there's almost uh, advanced alien technology oh, yeah. on this uh, on this uh, this particular fighter jet. Right. What what have we seen from the F twenty two previously? Have we actually seen the F twenty two in uh, in combat anywhere? Has it or is this sort of the first major? opportunity that the military has had to showcase the abilities of the F-22. From what we know, Frank, yes. I mean, maybe there's some secret information, but how about this? There is something factual I can report to the listeners here on the other side of midnight this morning. This is the highest air-to-air kill that this particular aircraft, you know, in its category, the F-22, and once they hit this particular balloon, I'm, I'm guessing pretty much, or actually hopefully very accurate on this, that it wasn't an explosive type of, you know, sidewinder missile. It was probably a kinetic one. In other words, it could just have a piece of big heavy metal in there. Once you puncture the balloon, it's going to implode. But what happens when the pilots are flying, the code word for the success of the destruction of the balloon is splash one. And then that information was relayed to a signal, a group in the military called Huntress. That was their code, code name. And that is the Eastern uh, Air Defense Sector which gets the confirmation the word is splash one when you splash the balloon. What, um, you know, one of the things that we've learned in the last week or so is that this balloon is not an isolated incident. Uh, there were no. reports of a similar balloon over Latin America. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have now heard from the Pentagon that over the last few years, these balloons have wandered over American airspace um, a great deal. Do we have any idea how common the use of these surveillance balloons by China is? And as far as you're aware, do any other countries utilize similar surveillance technology, this kind of balloon technique? Well, here we go. Here's an answer that's really amazing, and it hits it out of the park. A good friend of mine who I trust in his observations, I mean, this is a really good friend of mine in New Mexico, who obviously observes the skies, does incredible sketches, really is a great astrophotographer, and knows every inch of the sky. He sends me a report back in, I think it was 2017, over Albuquerque, New Mexico. He observed toward the horizon in a pair of binoculars this incredibly bright object. And he takes a look in the telescope, and he sketches this. It's a roundish-looking object that had a square payload very close to the horizon. Now, it doesn't mean it's on the horizon. It means that as you're looking down range, this object could still be 50, 60, 100,000 feet up. He calls everybody that he can, military, uh, 
he calls weather, you know, National Weather Service, meteorology. All law enforcement, everybody has no notification that there's something up there that they can tell him about. So if it's a U.S. meteorological uh, balloon, why the secret? So the, po- the point is, yes, this has moved into American airspace. And as we hear in, re- in the mainstream media, the Trump administration has reported that there's been a number of sightings crossing America in which apparently – I think it was General Mattis didn't want to tell the president because he thought he well, would Well, yeah, don't get me started on that. I mean, yeah. that's just ridiculous that <laughs> uh, that uh, generals and, and even the Secretary of Defense are making <laughs> right. decisions about what uh, the, the totally commander-in-chief should know, should know. Don't get yeah. me started on that. That's a, a whole uh, uh, the political can of worms that, uh, I absolutely that, know. that will t- right. take us down another path. Uh, if people have questions, by the way, 800-848-9222. My last question about sure. the balloon is is twofold and has to do with how it was seen. Now there were reports early on that it was first spotted by uh commercial uh, aviation uh sure. sources, maybe even commercial airline pilots. Do mm-hmm. we know if that's true? And if there were other balloons that have wandered over the United States previously, why did people, be they commercial airline pilots or just people on the ground, why did why were there no reports of them being seen previously? Or maybe they were as UFOs or something. Absolutely. Well, here's another thing. They're now, when we look at the whole UFO study that the government's doing, the UAPs, you know, unidentified aerial phenomenon, now into that category of the hundreds of unexplained sightings, maybe there were more or are more of these type of you know, so-called, what, not meteorological balloons, but these surveillance balloons. We'll probably never know. And since we can't get a straight answer out of the government on what they know, because that was done, what, in closed-door meeting with members of Congress, and there's so many secrets there. But how about this? If you all think out there, folks, and Frank, that this balloon itself has a big height above the Earth, 60,000 feet, that's really nothing, because I want to do a little memorial here. It's not. It's pretty much in the same, you know, in the same vernacular here. A good friend of mine was Colonel Joe Kittinger. Who was he? He was this incredible military man back on August 16, 1960. He went up in a balloon at 102,800 feet and jumped. Wow. He did a free fall. How how high was it again? Give me that again. 102,800 feet above the earth over New Mexico back in 1960. And I knew the man very well. He just passed away, sadly, back in uh, December. His free fall, get a load of this, was four and a half minutes. Oh, my goodness. And his speed of his body went to 714 miles per hour. He opened his chute successfully after the cords wrapped around his neck, and he almost perished at 18,000 feet. But Colonel Joe always told me, nobody will beat my record. Well, he calmed down, and he worked with Felix Baumgartner, a German, who back on October 14th of 2012 also jumped from a high altitude, higher than Colonel Joe. And he had a nine-minute fall. Okay, And I imagine nine minutes of free fall. And he actually broke the sound barrier. His body went 843 wow. miles per hour. So we have gone up to these heights. But remember, if you go up above 59,000 feet and you're not pressurized, there's a lot of problems that you're going to have with your body, you know, blood boiling if you're not in pressure suits and things of that nature. So it's a hostile environment. But the point going back to the Chinese surveillance balloon People are wondering, well, why bother with balloons when you can just do all this reconnaissance with satellites? Well, in this particular case, balloons are still very important because you can do a lot of espionage, both electronically 
and also optically, because allegedly this particular balloon must have had some sort of camera systems. We await the results of what comes out of 47 feet below the ocean. So do we know if other countries use balloons like this? Well, yes, but maybe not necessarily uh, in, in a balloon type, and I don't want to scare people out there. But this particular story goes even deeper, that the United States government has a platform, people should look it up, called, and I'll make this stuff up, Gorgon Stare. And what it is, it's a sophisticated type of camera system, surveillance system, that's equipped on one of the the drones that are flown up there, like the Predator-type drones. And now there's a lot of people, you know, in in the civil rights area, you know, human rights and things like that, about how deep is this espionage and spying go. So from the air, there's so many of these platforms that can, you know, be utilized but if people take a look at the term Gorgon Stare, I think they might uh, find themselves in a little bit of a quandary going, wow, look at what that can do. And where do we stop when it comes to the freedoms and, and rights that we have as citizens? How much uh, espionage do we really want to tolerate? But other than that, Frank, I don't know. I'm sure other countries, I don't have a list. I don't know. That's the honest answer. Mm. Which countries are also using this technology? But I would imagine not just the Chinese, but I'm sure the Russians have their own type of platforms. But I'm really surprised in closing on that one that they're even doing that kind of thing. Maybe the way they looked at it is, hey, let's test the Biden administration and let's see how much we can get away with and let's see what they do. But the real scary part, and this goes into darkness, and I hope it's never going to happen, is that if you actually had a small yield nuclear device that sailed over your country, as this one did, if you were to detonate that up in the atmosphere, God help us, at only 60 or 80,000 or 100,000 feet, that could cause serious damage in the electromagnetic pulse world. Right. No, really I mean, subject. there are some very, I mean, we've both sp- spoken with uh, Dr. Peter Vincent Pry uh, yes. about the re- very real dangers of uh, an EMP attack, uh, both Absolutely. a naturally occurring EMP or an EMP attack. And um, I think that's a, a very real concern. All right. Yes. We're going to continue with uh, Dr. Sky in just a minute. If you're just tuning in, we're talking with Steve Cates. You can, if you're interested in what we're talking about, you can check out the Dr. Dr. Sky Experience. You can find it at redapplepodcastnetwork.com or just search the Dr. Sky Experience. It should come right up. Nothing like it anywhere in the podcast world. Nothing like it anywhere in radio. And we're going to take your questions in a moment. I have a lot of questions related to space, but uh, the phone lines are jammed with people who want to talk with you, Steve. So we're going to give them an opportunity in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Have you ever been like a spaceship? Trapped in the sky I 
This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined for the hour by Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, veteran radio and TV broadcaster and an edutainer with a great deal of expertise in the world of space. And uh, he also hosts the Dr. Sky Experience, which you can check out at redapplepodcastnetwork.com. Steve, uh, before we get to the calls, and they're uh, substantial, and we're going to get to as many as we can in the next half hour, I want to uh, tap into your expertise in um, uh, a discussion that I'm moderating this Friday and this Saturday with William Shatner following a screening of Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. Now, Shatner has boldly gone where you and I would like to go. He's gone to space. So do you have any suggestions that I could ask him about what it's like going to space beyond the obvious of what, of that just now? What's it like going to space? Anything specific that I could sound like I know what I'm talking about when I ask him about going to space? Well, you always do, really, seriously. But I would suggest this. Talk to him about you know his whole experience there. I mean, the whole process, because many of us will not get to do this, and it's obviously because of the time and the cost of going up in a suborbital flight like Alan Shepard did back in May of 61. I would just basically ask him the whole process. In other words, when you have to suit up, what, what are some of the things they tell you? What are the, some of the things they tell you not to do? I mean, all the whole process, the whole experience, you know, what's it like? He's described it as being like a most spiritual type of an experience, which I've read, you know, from, from his, uh, his backstories on this. But I, I would wonder just a little bit more about the human side of that. You know, they got you suited up. Why? How? The whole thing. What, what kind of seats were you in? How long did you have, you know, have to float around in there? What was the experience like as far as G-forces on the body? Because those are things you don't really hear about. It's up and down like a ride in an amusement park. But many things that, uh, and I might even send you some uh, items. Uh, great, via text. great. I, I'll uh, I'll look forward to that. Yes, but Frank, I just wanted to jump in with something that I don't know. I didn't know this, and I just read this off my computer. Doctor Peter Vincent Pry just passed away. You're kidding me. No, this is. I mean, not just recent, not just today, but I, I was shocked because you, like yourself, and both of us, have had him on programs before, and I'm totally, you know, blown away because right here on my desk. I have all of the transcripts that he always used to send me electronically about Iran, about what's going on with Russia and China. And here's something I want to mention to put this one but you know to rest hopefully on the on the balloon. If people really want to read some of the intention of the Communist Chinese Party, not out of hatred for them, but just out of reality, I suggest that they read a speech. It's called The Secret Speech of General Chi Haotian, spelled H A O T I A N. It was given in 2005. He was a high-level Communist Party you know, member, a general. And the speech starts off with comrades, and it goes on for about 15 to 20 pages. And honestly, Frank, it's pretty frightening about how they have this mapped out, about why they believe strongly that they have, I guess the German word was Liebenstrom, about moving and expanding. They're talking about how they cannot sustain their world and their population without expansion. But it goes into some rather, I think, pretty uh, spooky things, and this isn't something that's made up. It was a speech given back in 2005 by General Chi Hayoshin. Wow. It's interesting reading. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. I, you know, I did email him recently, and he didn't yes. respond, which is uncharacteristic of him, and right. uh, I, that makes a lot of sense now. And I see now mm-hmm. that he did indeed um, pass away in August. All right, 800-848-9222. A lot of people have, uh, have questions. Yes. Let me begin with uh, Steve in Brooklyn. Hello, Steve. 
Yes, um, blimps, balloons, and dirigibles need to have a gas inside that keeps them buoyant in the air. Yes. Mm-hmm. Now, we long ago didn't count on um, fire-driven systems that had just hot air balloons. Those were unreliable, and you couldn't get that really across the, the Pacific Ocean. Yes. Mm-hmm. And furthermore, hydrogen is explosive. So that leaves us with basically helium. Correct. Now, one of the things that I read in recent years is that helium, like many of the rare earth elements, is in mm-hmm. a, astonishingly rare supply now. It sure is. And that means that in our carelessness with the mines throughout the world that the Chinese have been gathering and Mm -hmm. owning, they get all the rare earth elements. They own already something like 90% of the rare earth elements for computer chips, cobalt, lanthanum. But it also means that they have enough supply of helium to keep a four-story building buoyant in the air. I don't know exactly, Steve, but you are right on. You're spot on. Yeah, that's that's a, not yeah. the power. That's not the propulsion system at all. Right. Ma- the maneuverability all. means that we have to have such things as mm-hmm. fins, either internal or out- external. Sure. But the whole point is they have enough gas to keep such uh, dirigibles inflated. We don't use hydrogen anymore after the Hindenburg. Exactly. And the whole point is we have seeded to the Chinese Communist Party and the Chinese nation, all of the rare earth mines uh, where they are able to, in fact, when we gave up Afghanistan... All right, so Steve, I want, to give, I want to give other people an opportunity as well. Any Anything else you want to add there, uh, Steve, to what... Uh, well, I wanted to say, Steve's spot on, but again, the real cut to the chase on this is look at the expansion China's doing in Africa. We're talking about rare earth elements, but he's right. Being able to possess as much capability of producing helium, obviously this is probably the source of how that balloon was you know, inflated or up into the sky. But remember, here in the United States, if you go to Amarillo, Texas, that happens to at least be, at least in my mind, one of the great helium, at least for now, production areas where they can actually you know, procure helium. But it's an interesting subject. I mean, I'd love to talk about zeppelins and balloons. I had a lot of stories sometime about the Graf Zeppelin the Hindenburg, and all the great things that Ugo Eckner had developed. And by the way, that's one of our great podcasts that's up there on the Dr. Sky Experience about the history of those balloons. One of the things that I was a little disappointed by last week is for all the discussion about the uh, the so-called Green Comet, uh, XDF, yes. I was looking in uh, in the night sky and the morning sky and at the uh, the times that they said that it would be visible. I even broke out the old binoculars and uh, yes. I didn't end up seeing it. I'm curious how visible was this comet to those of us on Earth? Well, Frank, not to take uh, you know a, a Nobel Prize here with with your show and this show, but I want to say this: shame on a lot of media outlets because it spreads like a virus. They had it all wrong. The Green Comet you'd read about in news articles and you know on television here locally without naming the station. They had this whole thing come up just before the Super Bowl, which we're out here in Phoenix. It's ready on Sunday. But they were saying, tonight's the night to go out and see the Green Comet. Right. And they're describing it, saying, look overhead at 3 a.m. Com- uh, Frank, the comet itself was so difficult to find. This is always truth and nothing but truth on this show. You'll always get that from me. I had to go out on one of my dinner cruises that we do on one of the lakes out here with a you know, boatload of 100 people with a great meal. And in those dark skies, I take the binoculars and I see the smudge. And I say, wow, this particular comet, ZTF, is getting, unfortunately, the wrong kind of publicity because you really can't see it. 
But we always tell you on this radio show, on the other side of midnight, the real truth about stuff like this. It's by no means a bright object. So you and I, great, you know, to go out and take a look at the sky, we're not going to be able to see this. But we do have one more opportunity, and that occurs, believe it or not, on Friday and Saturday evening. If you look nearly overhead at sunset, do it before the moon rises, because moonlight wipes it out even more. You might be able to see two degrees to the right side of Mars, which is so easy to see. That might be one of your last chances yeah. to see the once in 50,000 year object called Comet ZTF. That's good to know. I will uh, keep that in mind. Robert in Suffolk, I think, has a question about the comet. Hello, Robert. Good morning. Yes, Frank, you're right. Uh, Dr. Sky, yes. What elements is this comet? composed of compared to others that makes it green? Very interesting. Oh, great, great question. What we're seeing on these comets, but this particular green comet, as it moves closer to the sun, it has a thing called a coma around it. And what it is, there's like these ices on the surface, Robert, that boil off when the sun, you know, gets, it gets close to the sun. You're looking here at actually carbon monoxide. You're looking at surface material that has carbon in it. So what it's doing is it's going, this is a strange term, it's called sublimation. What happens in sublimation, let's say you have ice, it goes not from ice to water and then to a gas. Sublimation goes directly from an ice to a gas. But you're seeing those type of elements in that comet to make it green. And it has really three tails, two that are real, one that's fake. They have dust that are coming off. It's like a sandblaster, is if you were hitting something to burn off paint or something on a sidewalk. The comet is getting hit by the solar wind. Those particular things, as I mentioned before, there's carbon monoxide, believe it or not, like comes out of a tailpipe of a car. And you're seeing things that are, you know, other elements causing this color to look green. And even oxygen is, is diffusing in the, off the surface of this comet through, through this heavy, heavy pressure of the solar wind. One of the things that uh, I did wonder about in terms of all the coverage about this Chinese spy balloon is what the Chinese are up to with respect to their space program. Over the last few years, it seems like China's been much more ambitious in terms of space exploration uh, than they had been previously. To the best of your knowledge, where is China with respect to the space program these days? Well, in many ways, they're equal or way ahead of the United States. And wow. if there's such a thing called a space race anymore, just know a few facts that are quite incredible. Their Mars mission that went there last year, for the first time, and I've said this before on other shows here on the other side of Midnight with you, we took a spacecraft to go to orbit Mars. Some of them never got there. Russians tried it, too. They just skipped by Mars. A couple of went into orbit. Took a while. Then we sent what? a little lander to the surface of, the, of Mars. Some crashed, ours made it, a couple of ones crashed. Then we had little rovers like Sojourner and all the big ones like the one you see now. China did that in one fell swoop. They did a rocket that went to Mars. They went in orbiter. They went a descent module that landed there like a little you know, spacecraft that landed on the surface and out of it came a rover. If you look at the moon, they're the first country to actually land a, you know, a spacecraft on the far side of the moon. And that's incredible with a little U-2 rover that came out of it that's running around under solar power when our moon, you know, the other side of the moon gets the sunlight when we're seeing the darkness. So isn't that incredible? So they're pretty much, I think, in many ways, some people are saying they're way ahead of us. Wow. But, but how did they get this technology? And the short story, which is a long one, but we'll make it short, 
is that a Chinese physicist who worked with NASA and JPL in the 1950s and 60s was then accused of spying for the Chinese government, and he was removed and sent to China. But that particular man, and forgive me for not having his name right in front of me, people can look up that general idea on Google or wherever. But you know what? This is interesting, Frank. He helped develop the entire Chinese nuclear weapon program and so much of their spacecraft for orbital trajectories and how to do all this. So we had him first, and then he went over to the other side. 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yes, I wanted to talk about the balloon. Um, Steve, you mentioned, you, 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 first of all, you didn't say when those U-2 planes were sent up. Were they sent up when it was um, over the Aleutian Islands, or did they wait until it you know, passed over the whole country? If, if they waited until it got... South right. Carolina. You're breaking up a little there, Larry. What? No, I hear him. I hear Larry. Good morning, Larry. That's, um, that, that, that's the yes. first question. My second question is, you mentioned the kinetic missile brought it down. Now, it, this seems to be like killing a, a boy with a Tommy gun. I yep. mean, <laughs> if they could have pierced it with a, with a, with a small knife or something, would that, wouldn't that have brought it down slowly? And if they were Probably. All right, Larry, Larry, your phone's screwed up, so I'm just going to let Steve respond to your the questions. No, Larry, great questions. I don't know. I have no intel on when those, you know, but the U2Rs, the the actual Dragon Ladies, were sent up when and where. It's just that I'm reading on that same website that we talked about before, Frank, you know, the drive, that that's allegedly what happened. But the reality of this is, you know, certainly I'm not sure about that. But when you take a look at these, these, these technologies out there, it's interesting. So I'm saying from what I'm reading, I'm only reporting what I'm reading here. And again, always have a question mark in the back of your head unless there's total confirmation of this. And the military tends not to give you all the answers, right? That's what we're seeking. So look at that, a potential kinetic missile, which means it could have punctured the hole in it. Once you do that to a balloon at that altitude, implosion is going to take place and the thing is going to drop because you see the payload coming down. But their theory was putting that payload, which is what they wanted, into the ocean has a, quote, softer, but don't tell me that, Frank, if I jump in and jump into a pool with my belly first, it's still going to hurt like hell. <laughs> but, but in this case, they thought it was more logical that you'd have more survivable material off of that payload if it went into the ocean. And again, the ocean there is only some 47 feet deep, they say, but too deep for me to want to go down there. Same here. Hey, um, speaking of space, Jupiter, I understand, has some new moons, at least new to us. Yes. This is a great story because we always have the kids love this. When we go to do these programs, they always talk about, hey, Dr. Sky, how many moons does this planet have? Well, we had Saturn, which had the record for a while with like 83. But apparently 12 new moons have been identified over the course of about a year. And this takes a lot of time. Now 92. How about that? And I'm sure, Frank, with the power of Jupiter, there's many, many more. But here's the story on this. Some of these are just a few miles in diameter. and thinking you're looking at an object 88,000 miles in diameter. And congratulations to my little Scion uh, you know, XB car. It just turned 88,000 miles. So I would have been able to drive, what, from one side of Jupiter to the other. That's how big Jupiter is. But it took me years. But these satellites, some of them go in what's called retrograde orbits, meaning backwards, you know, and then some of them closer to Jupiter go in what's called prograde orbits. And then they have one moon that they found out. It's called Valetudo. It's supposed to be the Roman goddess of hygiene and health. That's her name, Valetudo. She orbits 11 million miles from Jupiter. 
And that's incredible because the entire Jovian system, you wouldn't want to get close to this planet. You know, even those four Galilean satellites like Io, Europa, Ganymede, and Callisto, the radiation doses that you would get would just be so formidable. But isn't that amazing? I'm sure there's hundreds of more moons because Jupiter has such a great gravity attraction. It even helps and does have a tug on the Earth at now some 570 million miles away from us. We're going to continue with Steve Cates, a.k.a. Dr. Sky, in just a bit. And if you can't get enough of our discussion today, be sure to check out the Dr. Sky Experience podcast. You can go to Red Apple Podcast Network, or you could search Dr. Sky Experience on any podcast app. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. She packed my bags last night, pre-flight. Zero hour, 9 a.m. And I'm going to be high as a kite. such a timeless flight and I think it's going to be a long The great William Shatner with his interpretation of Rocket Man I'm going to be with William Shatner this Friday and Saturday at following screenings of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. A little bit later in the program, we're going to talk with the man that directed that picture, Nicholas Meyer, and uh, we'll get some insight into what that picture's legacy has been over the course of the last 40 years. Still tickets available for Saturday, by the way. If you go to bergenpack.org and you get a couple of tickets, use the promo code NJ Frank, and you could save some money. Uh, we're talking with Steve Cates, aka Doctor Sky, about what is happening in the night sky and uh, what's going on in space these days. A lot of people have questions for you, Steve. Let's try and squeeze in as many as we can sure. here. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Don is in Long Beach. Hello, Don. Hi, Frank. Hi, Doctor Sky. Good morning. Uh, question: yeah. um, What kind of propulsion systems are, are we developing to get us to the planets a lot quicker than currently? Uh, it kind of compares to when they were exploring the New World, and you know, explorers yes. would come over with sails, you know, relying on on wind. So in space, it's similar. So just curious, what what's sure. your mind up the road? Well, Don, great question. I regret right to it here. It looks like from a '60s program that the American government had the space program before they were actually NASA, let's say. They developed something called the NERVA project, which is a nuclear rocket. So you may have heard just recently within the last month or so, the, the government is now, and so is President Biden and a lot of people in the political world and NASA, excited about this new propulsion system that they would develop, probably not going to happen for the next maybe 10 years or so, to develop faster speeds. And also, there's another kind of strange technology called xenon. It's X-E-N-O-N. Xenon, if you look it up, 
it basically has some kind of a force that comes out. It's not a propulsion like using chemical rockets. It's like something that's done electrically. And it actually has like this most amazing blue, you know, environmentally, everybody be happy in space that we're not, you know, pumping out pollutants, even though there's not much air out there, of course. But those are the two things, nuclear and the xenon propulsion are some new technologies trying to get away from what we call chemical rockets today. Steve, uh, talking about the rockets that are being developed around the world, in terms of who's doing the developing, what countries are the leaders in terms of rocket development? What are these rockets that are being developed that you're excited about? And does it tend to be governments that are leading the that are paving the way in terms of this rocket development or does it tend to be private sector companies like SpaceX? Well, SpaceX, I think, gets the lead with the most powerful. But let's go back to the one, the big benchmark was Saturn V, of course, seven and a half million pounds of thrust. The next one we go to SLS's Artemis rocket. That had, and it did successfully launch with 8.8 million pounds of thrust with a 5.75 million pound payload. So in other words, you have to have more thrust than you have weight there. But SpaceX, listen to this, folks. This is interesting, Frank. The large Starship rocket stack with this new booster rocket will produce, wow, get a load of this, we need a drum roll, 16 million pounds of thrust. That's unheard of, which is absolutely the kind of thrust you need to lift heavy payloads out to the moon and out to Mars and beyond. Japan is developing a rocket called the H-3. It's their heavy lift rocket. European Space Agency has the Ariane 6, which replaces the Ariane 5. Ariane 5 was what helped put the uh, James Webb telescope into orbit, location-wise, because it's near the equator. You needed something to push that big, heavy, you know, spacecraft up and move it away at the Earth's speed at the equator, which is quick. And then finally, the United Launch Alliance has something called the Vulcan Centaur. So we have a lot of them. But to answer your question, it's a lot of government agencies kind of vying pretty much equally, in my mind, with uh, the private side. So the lot, a lot of great rocket launches coming. So stay tuned. As I was driving home yesterday, I saw there was a pretty interesting looking moon in the sky. Yes. But uh, there's a lot of talk about the full snow moon. What is the full right. snow moon? Well, we just had it. It happened over the weekend, actually Monday for, for the observers here in, let's say, your area back on the East Coast and the listeners across the country. That snow moon is kind of interesting. The second full moon of the, of the year, obviously. And name because obviously snow is pretty abundant, we know, in February in this northern hemisphere. But it happened to be called a micro moon. What's that? It's the farthest moon of the full moons of the entire year of 2023 because it's at its apogee distance or near it. So we won't get a close perigee moon until the 19th of February. But it's always wonderful to look at the moon. And some curse it. And I don't mean to be, you know, vocally you know, bad here. Because deep sky observers do not want a full moon in the sky. The obvious reason we talked about with the comet, the darker skies you can get, obviously, away from city lights. But don't forget, even in big urban areas like New York, Phoenix, the fifth largest city in America, you still have so many things to see. And I'll end off with this, Frank, this most majestic conjunction of planets in the making. February, of course, the month of love, Valentine's Day, water around the corner. If you look in the southwest, just after sunset, everywhere this radio show is, let's say in the northern hemisphere, you'll see Venus. She's the goddess of love and beauty. She's easy to see in the sky, very brilliant, because she's cloud-laden. She's slowly cro encroaching on Jupiter, which is that planet we just talked about with the 92 moons, easy to see with your naked eye. So if you follow it over this entire month, you'll see Venus getting closer. So the love and romance between the two, they're getting closer and closer. And by the end of the month, 
and March 1st to be almost exact, you'll see them in a magnificent conjunction. I call it of biblical proportions. You know, some of the so-called stars of Bethlehem answers and theories were that these planets came together. They'll be the diameter of a full moon. And that's beautiful. Steve, uh, the hour has flown by, as it always do, on either the bi-weekly or bi-monthly basis in which we speak. It is uh, great to talk with you. I'll look forward to chatting with you in two weeks. Thank you. Looking forward to it, Frank. Thank you so much. Be sure to check out the Dr. Sky Experience at uh, redapplepodcastnetwork.com. And in the words of the great Casey Kasem, keep reaching for the stars, but keep your feet on the ground. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. You may remember 24 hours ago, I told you how I tend not to enjoy the State of the Union address. The State of the Union addresses year after year, president after president, doesn't matter, Republican, Democrat, whatever. The speeches go on too long. They become formulaic. Usually they're not delivered very well. The only speech that's worse is the speech delivered by the opposition party. All these presidents have all sorts of guests in the audience designed to get some applause lines. And essentially it's a thank you. Yes, thank you. Yes, let's hear it for... um, the, the man that met Andy Griffith, who's here in the, in the chambers right now, ladies and gentlemen. There he is, the man that met Andy Griffith. Yes, that's right. Stand up. Stand up, Chuck. We're all standing up for you. All right. So uh, I, I don't really enjoy watching these speeches because really what it is, it's a combination of two things. It's a, the, whoever the president is. Setting, uh, patting themselves on the back for a job well done and highlighting their accomplishments. And also it's setting kind of the legislative agenda for the year, highlighting the things that they want to do. And I guess that's all important stuff, but it's just it's not really that interesting. And usually the I mean, it's interesting on one level. It's not interesting on others. Usually the things that whoever the president aspire, whoever the president happens to be, aspires to do, whatever the things that he aspires to do, they are light years from coming to reality once the kind of sausage making of the legislative process gets underway. And it's all so scripted and formulaic. I don't really enjoy him. You compare that to the first State of the Union. And I don't even think it was ever it was a speech. It was uh, just a message. Remember, the Constitution says the president has to deliver a State of the Union message to Congress. But I don't think the founders necessarily thought that it would be in the form of a speech. And George Washington wrote it out. You know how long the first State of the Union address was by first State of the Union message was by George Washington? Eight hundred thirty three words. 833 words. You know what 833 words is? That's a short email from me. That would be, if you read it, under 10 minutes. Compare that. 
to what we've seen from President Biden, President Trump, President Obama, President Clinton. Um, And only two presidents gave no State of the Union addresses. That was William Henry Harrison and James Garfield, obviously, because both of them died uh, prematurely. They never had the opportunity. So keep in mind, I am not that interested in watching the State of the Union. And because you kind of figure whatever the real highlights are, I'm going to read about and I'm going to see a hundred times on the radio. So I was pretty tired last night at around a quarter after eight. And I was faced with a decision. Do I take a nap and then shower and come to work? Maybe be well rested for the show? Or do I force myself to stay up and watch as much of, a, of as much of what I can of a speech that I'm not particularly interested in seeing? And I and I I really did weigh this because I thought, look, you know, as an American, as someone who I don't know cares about public affairs, as somebody that gives my opinion about what's happening in the country. Do I at least owe it to the audience to watch it? So on the one hand, I'm weighing my sense of responsibility to the country and to you, the audience. On the other hand, I'm thinking I am pretty tired. Fatigue, responsibility. Fatigue, responsibility. And uh, spoiler alert, the nap one. So I took a nap. Took a nap, took a shower, drove in, and then I could have listened on the radio to the last few minutes of uh, less, maybe 15, 20 minutes of Biden's speech. Instead, I chose to go back and listen to a speech by Nicholas Meyer in preparation for my interview with him next hour. And I thought to myself as I was preparing for this show, well, look, we got to talk about the State of the Union. And I thought to myself, what can we do that's different from what everyone else is doing? And a lot of the other shows that have that have aired around the country and will air all day tomorrow are going to have experts uh, responding to the State of the Union. What did President Biden say? How did he say it? And a lot of the remarks that I'm seeing so far, by the way, are actually pretty favorable. So I did not see it. That is my true confession. I didn't see it. And I thought to myself, well, I'd like to try and get some experts and uh, different people. My friend Obi Murray suggested, well, maybe you get this speechwriter or that speechwriter. I said, okay, well, that's that's interesting. But what can we do that's really different? Here's what we're going to do. I am not going to have any expert or any politician responding to the speech. And I was offered many Democrats, Republicans, you know, independents. You so on and so forth. What I would like to do for the next few minutes is have you call in if you watch the speech or listened to it and give me your recap of what occurred. I want you to pretend that you're speaking with someone that did not see the speech, which you don't have to pretend that hard because I did not see the speech and I have been avoiding any clips of the speech just so that we can do this exercise. So my understanding of what was in this speech will be solely from you. But here's the here's the catch. Whatever your politics, right, left, center, somewhere off the spectrum, whatever. 
In addition to summarizing for me what President Biden did and how you think the speech went, I would like you to tell me one positive aspect of the speech and one negative aspect of the speech. Maybe you're a Republican who hates everything that Biden has done, and uh, you still say, well, look, it was well-delivered. I'll give him that. There was not a lot of, you know, whatever whatever the case may be. 800-848-9222. Maybe you're a Democrat that agrees with a lot of the substance of what Biden uh, highlighted. But you say, look, you know, I don't like that he didn't villainize the MAGA Republicans enough. Too many, too much talk of unity or this or that. Whatever the case may be, wherever you fall, I want you to call in and give me your recap of the speech at 800-848-9222. And I want you to tell me one positive thing about it, either the substance of it or the delivery, and one negative thing about it. 800-848-9222. So far, a lot of the summaries that I'm seeing uh, from sources that I trust are giving the president pretty high marks. I want to hear from you, though. Um, One good thing. One bad thing, 800-848-9222. President Biden is not a stranger to State of the Union politics. You know, it's it's easy to forget because he's the president now. Biden has been in Washington and around Washington maybe more than any president in history. Um, You know, the only one that I think is even close to comparable is George H.W. Bush, but Biden's got him beat. So he spent over four decades in and around Washington. So he sat in the vice president's chair for eight years as President Obama gave the State of the Union address. But as a prominent senator from Delaware for many years, he was front and center in terms of talking about the State of the Union. In fact, if you go back 40 years, and this is uh, from from uh, uh, C-SPAN. This is 40 years ago at the State of the Union address. President Reagan obviously was in office and President uh, President Reagan was given his State of the Union. And remember what was going on at that point in the country. Country was very much in a recession and President Reagan's approval numbers were not that high. And just a year later, Reagan went on to win 49 states in his reelection. Here was a bit of Biden talking about Reagan's State of the Union address back in 1983, 40 years ago this week. We can criticize the Republicans, and we will. We think, frankly, though, it's time we put up or shut up. So you're going to hear a number of proposals from the Democratic Party. Some of them are very basic, tried and true, and some of them are new ideas. But all of them fall within a very positive and hopeful Democratic view. A vision of America that says we can rebuild to a strong economy. We can create better and more secure jobs. And we can really put this country back to work. And two other themes run through all the democratic ideas you're going to hear tonight. Opportunity and fairness. The cornerstone rights of the American people. As Franklin Roosevelt said during the recovery from the Great Depression, just four words are important now. These four words, it can be done. You know, it is interesting listening to that couple of things. One is how good Biden sounded, how smooth he was, right? I mean, I realize the man is now uh, 
80 years old and he was 40 years old at the time. And I don't know many 80 year olds who sound as they did when they were 40, but it is, you hear the energy, you hear the smoothness and the ease and delivery. You listen to him speak these days. It's certainly a different situation, but uh, look, we can't help aging, right? It happens to everybody. The, um, the other thing that's interesting is how similar so many of the things that could be said by a leading Democrat or Republican today are. So the more things change, the more they stay the same to some extent. I want to give uh, credit to uh, Kevin McCarthy, the Speaker of the House. One of the things that uh, that uh, I have never liked in recent years is sort of the increasing nastiness and partisanship that has enveloped the whole State of the Union affair. One of them, one of them that I just thought was disgusting, quite frankly, was when Nancy Pelosi was the Speaker of the House and Donald Trump delivered his State of the Union address. And Nancy Pelosi, after the speech, and this was one of the more tame Trump speeches from what I remember, Nancy Pelosi, after the speech, actually went and toured, uh, tore up the speech on television. And I thought that that was so uh, classless, to say the least. And um, one of the things that I gave Kevin McCarthy credit for is, in advance of the speech, he was asked by the, by people, and I'm sure he had some people in his own party urging him to do the same thing and behave the way that Nancy Pelosi was behaving. He wouldn't do it. Here was uh, Kevin McCarthy, I believe this was on uh, CNN, talking about how he wouldn't be ripping up Biden's speech or anyone else's. We have a code of ethics of how we should portray ourselves, so also do our jobs, and that's exactly what we'll do. But we're not going to be childish games tearing up a speech. I get, Good for you. Kevin McCarthy, I am pleased to hear that. No more childish games and a code of ethics. That was so refreshing to hear, and I was surprised. One listener wrote to me and sent me this article about how Kevin McCarthy's not going to be tearing up Biden's speech, and he said, "I GOP wimps out again, and I'm, I'm shaking my head. I mean, to me, this is what we want statesmen acting like statesman not tearing up the other guy's speech and to uh, making a show of how little respect we have for the person in the other party so uh this fellow that wrote to me a great guy a longtime uh listener to this show a real patriot and a vietnam veteran he wrote i must announce our house speaker this is exactly what's wrong with the republican party and uh then he goes on to give uh, other other examples. I completely disagree. I think Kevin McCarthy is handling this like a statesman. And apparently, House Republicans have been warned to act as if the country was watching and listening. There, um, The House GOP campaign arm leader, Richard Hudson, told Axios... There was just a reminder that there are boom microphones and some people's conversations will be picked up and that anything you're reading on your phone could be picked up by a Zoom lens. So I was glad McCarthy told the members of his conference to you know, be respectful. And we have seen Republicans and Democrats in recent years d- just be 
totally rude and disrespectful. You remember Congressman Joe Wilson, Republican of South Carolina, still serves in the House to this day. He shouted, you lie, during then-President Obama's speech to a joint session of Congress. Some Democrats were disruptive during former President Trump's State of the Union addresses, with many of them groaning and booing during his 2018 speech, and three of them walking out in his 2020 speech. I mean, you talk about rude. You talk about classless. You talk about disrespectful. You talk about a very poor message to our children. And that's it. That's it. Uh, last year, Representatives Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert heckled President Biden during his State of the Union last year, at one point trying to start a build-the-wall chant as he spoke about immigration. I mean, act like you've been there before. Act like you're a, a statesman that's representing hundreds of thousands of people in the room with the president and the leaders of the free world, all three branches under one roof. Don't act like you're in uh, like some frat house or some sports bar. Come on. Is it too much to ask members of both parties to act like they care about their country a little bit more than um, treating the State of the Union like another sporting event? And that's why I was so disappointed. This is the one thing I did see of the summary so far, uh, that you had some people in Congress yesterday, and I don't know which specific members, but you had some people doing this again last night. Acting boorish and rude and childish. And I'll tell you, I don't know who these members are. I hope my congresswoman was not among them. I suspect she was not. I don't know who would act like this. This is no way to behave. So President Biden was uh, booed and called a liar by certain members of Congress last night. So my many of some of my Republican friends want to take the economy hostage. I get it unless I agree to their economic plans. All of you at home should know what those plans are. Instead of making the wealthy pay their fair share, some Republicans, some Republicans want Medicare and Social Security to sunset. I'm not saying it's a majority. Let me give you, anybody who doubts it, contact my office. I'll give you a copy. I'll give you a copy of the proposal. That means Congress doesn't vote. Well, I'm glad. And um, look, what Biden said there is factually correct. You've had Senator Rick Scott, one of the leading members of the Republican Senate uh, conference, propose exactly that. Uh, significant entitlement reform, which would um, would make significant changes to Social Security and Medicare. But even if what he said was inaccurate, do you really need at that moment? to start jumping up and hooting and hollering like an idiot? I mean, is that the kind of message that you want to send to the youth of America? I don't think so, personally. But what I want to do is hear your recap. Explain the State of the Union address to someone that didn't watch it, didn't listen to it. And I want you to give at least one good thing and one bad thing. Could be substantive, could be stylistic. Or anything else. 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Chris in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Hey, good morning, Frank. I thought President Biden's speech was well-delivered for a man at 80, and he actually brought up several good ideas for government intervention, excuse me, intervention 
and uh, regulation in the areas of airline industries, telecommunications industries, cable, satellite, TV industry, and with internet providers. He should have taken it a step or two further by calling out for Congress and add specificity for challenging them to do its job and pass legislation in this area. I thought the one hiccup he had was what led to the catcalling by Marjorie Terrell, Taylor Greene about the debt ceiling, and he called out specific Republicans. And this is what elicited her catcalls. He could have worded it differently if he had said mm. the budget deficit is rising and we have to work together in both parties and decide where to make cuts in our future budgets without cutting the services that our citizens rely on to live a healthy and prosperous life and to enjoy the American lifestyle we have enjoyed and to pursue the American dream. That's how I would have done it. It sounds like a fair criticism and a pretty good recap, Chris. Thank you. 800-848-9222. I didn't watch the State of the Union address last night. What did I miss? Tell me honestly and objectively. And tell me one positive of the speech and one negative. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Vinny in New Jersey. Hello, Vinny. Hey, good morning, Frank. How are you? Great. Thanks. Good. One positive, one negative. I mean, the one good positive was that he actually stayed up the entire State of the Union address. Looked like he was about to fall asleep a couple of times. Uh, even my wife said something looked really funny about his face. I mean, I don't know what was going on. But uh, as far as the, the negative, I mean, he wasn't telling us stuff we didn't already know. I mean, he's telling us the economy is great. Uh, and that the country is doing terrific. And I don't know about him, but I'm still having a hard time, you know, paying for gas and, and looking for stuff on empty shelves in the supermarket. Yeah, and if you do find something in the supermarket, like a, a dozen eggs, forget about it. Be prepared to pay through the nose. All right, very good recap there, Vinny. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Igor in Fairfield. What do you have for us, Igor? Uh, greetings, Frank. Yeah, you know, I was most interested in seeing uh, how sharp he would be. And in the first couple seconds, I wasn't quite sure. But I think we saw the very best that Joe Biden can be. I thought he was uh, bright. I thought he was conversational in, uh, as well in his speech. Uh, and while there was catcalling, of course, when issues came up regarding uh, border security and, and he hinted at the uh, fentanyl-related uh, uh, problems, drug-related problems, and, and as it related to the border, I think that he was very, very uh, up for the debate. And I think he was very, very mentally sharp. And uh, I, I thought that was uh, it was a really a great performance on well, his part. Well, uh, thank you, Igor. That sounds very fair. You know, it's funny. One mm-hmm. of the recaps that I read very quickly, just right a couple of minutes ago from Brian Rosenwald, who's been a guest on this show, said similar to what Igor just said. He said, look, you know, Biden is never going to be a smooth orator. He's prone to verbal flubs. And uh, at times his delivery got too fast at points. But this Biden last night, according to Rosenwald, was different. He was feisty, funny, optimistic, hopeful and willing to joust with the many hecklers in the Republican half of the galleries. And um, I just think it's such a shame that the uh, the Speaker of the House has to shush his own members. Uh, and uh, it's just a big change from the way things once were on uh, on Capitol Hill. 800-848-9222. Simon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Simon. Yeah, Frankie. Yeah, yeah. Listen, I um, I think it was amazing. I think Joe Biden really took the crowd. Um, I, I, everyone, uh, he did a great job. 
But I, I, in, in all the years, you ever saw such a thing? Stated union dress, everyone is screaming, and it looked like it, it was it was embarrassing, you know. With throughout the, even during any president, we they, we don't do that. The whole world is watching us. It was embarrassing, and I think um, they got to change the ways. They have the left side the, by the left, and by the we have the also the left side and the by the Democrats, and we have well, also extreme Republicans and. That's the issue here. We're, we're fighting. It's not the same like it was. Yeah, uh, Simon, you know, that's 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 my takeaway, and that's kind of what has me lamenting the state of our republic. Now, um, are you are you a conservative, Simon? I'm a conservative. You're a conservative, I mean, and and you're just as disgusted that there might be Republicans hooting and hollering and screaming liar at a Democratic president as I might yeah, be. Yeah, right? it's embarrassing because right. this is a State of the Union address. You have to be, you know, you, you got to give them respect. And right, right. I think that this is, and this is respecting America. It's, he's the, he, he's still the president. I, I, mean, I completely so. agree with you, Simon. I think yeah. we're we're exactly on the same page. Thank you. You know, uh, to Simon's point, it is embarrassing. You know, it's almost what you would expect. And I know they do this in other countries, like in the UK. If you ever watch those parliamentary debates when the leader of one party or another is speaking, it's just expected that the opposition party will say, like they'll act, they'll get out of control and carry on. I think we should set a better example for um, the children of the country and for the adults, quite frankly, because you know what happens? People, adults and children, see respected politicians who are elected uh, the best of their communities, sent to Washington to represent their communities, and then they emulate this behavior. And it sends the message to both children and adults that this is how you handle people you disagree with. No, whatever happened to uh, Jesus, love your enemy. Don't, Don't yell and boo at your enemy. And why do you have to view someone that you disagree with politically as your enemy? View it as someone you disagree with. So uh, I, I think Simon is right on the money. We're going to continue with your uh, with your um, with your calls in a moment. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. I want you to tell me what your impression of the State of the Union was, as objectively and honestly as possible. And I want you to tell me one good aspect of it. And one bad aspect of it. Whatever your political persuasion, doesn't matter to me. Just curious as to your your take on the speech itself. This is The Other Side of Midnight, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-whim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano.
This is Michael McDonald's Sweet Freedom. Obviously, when we're talking about the State of the Union and uh, the State of the Republic, this seems to be a, a pretty apt song to play. But uh, And I'll tell you what this song reminds me of in a second. But this song was actually a birthday bumper music selection of uh, Diana Falzone. Uh, Diana Falzone, many of you probably know. You might have seen her on Fox over the years or on television. She is a, uh, she's really kind of a renaissance woman. She's a journalist. She's a contributing editor to the um, Daily Beast. She's been a warrior in terms of uh, the Endometriosis Foundation. She has endometriosis and has been a real advocate for people that suffer with uh, endometriosis. And uh, I don't mind telling you this. You know, I was asked months ago by, um, I think it was Jennifer in Boston. She said, of all the classic movie stars, who do you think were the real beauties? And I listed a few, and she mentioned a few. Diana Falzone, I don't, I don't know if she's still a model, but she was a model back in the day. I think she might still be a model. Diana Falzone is one of the most beautiful women in the world. And uh, today she turns 40 years old. She has that kind of classic old school movie star look. And uh, she's actually on the cover of Metropolitan Magazine uh, this week. And uh, you could see exactly what I mean. Uh, It's uh, Chase Backer's Luxury Magazine. Uh, he does a great job with uh, Metropolitan Magazine. And I think this is actually her first magazine cover. So it's a big week for her. Uh, 40 years old, first magazine cover, and getting Sweet Freedom by Michael McDonald played. Now, the reason what I always think of when I hear this song is this was John Gambling's theme song when he was on WABC back in the day. And I remember when he picked it. And uh, he picked it around 2005. And he kept this as his top of the hour open every hour, just like we do with uh, Enter Sandman. This was his top of the hour theme from around 2005 until he left WABC in April of 08. So uh, this song clearly had a lot of resonance with me because, for me, I always think of the John Gambling Show. All right, we're talking about the State of the Union address. I want to hear your recap and your review of what occurred. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to David in the Bronx. Hello, David. Hey, uh, good morning, Frank. Um, you and I are both political junkies, and I also skipped it, and I've been skipping it for years. It's just a performance. It, it doesn't serve any useful purpose. And when you have divided government, as we have now, I doubt anything President Biden uh, was aiming for is going to get through Congress in the next two years. That's just how government works. Mm -hmm. And regarding the debt ceiling, because I sent you an article about it. I think it's unconstitutional, this whole debt ceiling thing. Um, You know, the power of the purse lies with Congress and especially the House. If Kevin McCarthy and and Marjorie Taylor Greene and all these people want cuts, they should do it in regular order right. instead of holding the country hostage. Because as a person who receives Social Security benefits, I'm concerned that they're not going to be paid out if they go over the debt ceiling, not to mention all the other harms. Yeah, so, I, I largely agree with you. And uh, I would have said I said I would have said the same thing when president when then Senator Obama voted against raising the debt ceiling during the Bush administration. Right, exactly. And it got through Trump three times with no you know, hullabaloo. So, you know, they need to get to work. 
And when I listen, and I heard a few seconds of this, I think maybe on one of the other radio shows, when I heard this stuff, you know, I'm glad that we can all cheer and, and celebrate democracy, but we could do this just as easily with a written statement. I think it would, it would serve our purposes. We wouldn't have to waste money on the security and all this other stuff, and we could save ourselves Marjorie Taylor Greene screaming from the audience every year, which apparently is going to be the new tradition for the next few years. Thank yeah, you, yeah, thank you, David. Look, I, I don't blame presidents for wanting a moment to act presidential and to use the bully pulpit of their office. But it's just enough is enough. It's just too much. It's too much. And, and there's very little that comes of this. It's just it's a show. Essentially, it's a pageant. Right. And um, there if you compare the proposals that come out of the State of the Union address to what's actually enacted into law, it, it's it's light years from from what actually happens. I don't know what percentage actually become law, but um, you you also and it's look, it's an excuse for every president to say, hey, look at me, look at what a great job I'm doing. And I think it is important for presidents to um, to tell people to communicate what they believe they're doing well. And but uh, look, Washington who I still think, even though he was our first president, one of our greatest presidents, he was able to do it with a written written speech or a written message. You know, and somehow the world continued. You know, it's funny, Robert Reich is, actually, is obviously a very liberal Democrat, a very partisan Democrat. He writes in his column, which I subscribe to, that uh, he thinks Biden has been an excellent president. And he gets into, look, he goes, he lists some of his accomplishments. He says, look... But his approval ratings are dismal. Says he's one of the least popular presidents at this time as an administration than anybody. And part of his column is exploring why Reich thinks Biden has been an excellent president, but why America doesn't agree. So maybe there is some value in telling people what a great job that you're doing. I just I've become so cynical and so jaded uh, on the one hand that. I feel like everybody is so dug in and I feel like nobody can give the other side a break, Democrat or or Republican. And I don't see even if Biden gave the best speech in the world, I don't see the people that really dislike him being moved. And by the same token, I think a lot of the Biden partisans is that, um, you know, that really like what he's doing, even if he basically just sat there and didn't say a word. I don't think they were going to be critical. So it's just um, I, I just it seems to me these days more than ever, we're viewing everything through the lens of extreme partisanship, which I think is just a tremendous shame. Uh, 800-848-9222. Roger in Baltimore. What did I miss last night in the State of the Union? Hey, I watched it. Um, you know, by, by the way, love your Sandman. Still waiting for Mariana to be on your show. But anyhow, <laughs> thank you. On uh, OK, Biden, great energy. Uh, I don't think the bar was too high on that. So his great energy, you know, seemed wonderful. And it was it was good. Um, on the other side, listen, the, the thing about the uh, the booing that you played earlier, there's a context to that. Very important. Um, yes, it's true. A couple Republicans talked earlier some some while back 
about maybe trimming back Medic, you know, Medicare, uh, Social Security. That has no traction in the Republican Party. Multiple Republican leadership and all rank and file have come out very clearly saying, no way. We're not cutting it. Don't even talk about it. They've told that to Biden uh, when McCarthy met with him a couple days ago. He, he repeated it. We're not cutting Social Security. We're not interested in it. So don't don't even bring it up again. And Biden has repeatedly said it again and again and again because he knows it's politically powerful that it riles up people against the Republicans. So that was the context that the Republicans were shocked that he did it, and they were angry that he's intentionally misrepresenting them. It was a lie. Unfortunately, it was a lie, and that's why they were so pissed off. But Biden, to his credit, a lot of energy. He knew he needed to bring it. And on that scale, he sure brought it tonight. So uh, l- l- I'll accept your premise that uh, Biden was being disingenuous with respect to Medicare and entitlements in general. It's a big issue for the country. Right. I oh, no doubt. really no vote doubt. on that no, issue, no in but, a, uh, you know, among so, others. Roger, Roger, so, Roger, so do you think that that's an appropriate way to react when a president lies in his State of the Union address? This case. Because it has been repeatedly said to the nation by as many Republicans as possible. Right. right. So why couldn't Sarah Huckabee Sanders? We're not interested in cutting it. Roger. Roger. Went ahead and he knows, you see, there's a lot of people out there listening. True what you're saying about about Uh, writing. But people sometimes this is where they get their information. They're not as smart as you to look into the written stuff. They're just listening to this. And that's where they'll get their information and make their decision. But why couldn't? Um, look, Sarah Huckabee Sanders gets a response uh, to or the Republicans, uh, in this case, it was Sarah Huckabee Sanders, get to respond to the State of the Union. Why couldn't she, in her remarks, simply just say what the what Biden said was an outright lie? Additionally, all 200 and whatever, 18 members of the Republican conference or 220 members of the Republican conference in the House, they all have Twitter. They all have the ability to call a press conference. They could all use the bully pulpits of their respective offices to all say after the speech, the president just lied to you. Why do you have to get up there and behave like a like, like a frat boy during the speech itself? To me, it looks juvenile. Well, great question. Um, you know, there were multiple issues, as there always are. When a Democrat's giving it, Republicans can, you know, bark, bark, bark. When Republicans are doing it, Democrats can bark, bark, bark. So there were multiple issues, in this case, the Democrats giving the speech, where the Republicans could have barked, bark, bark. And they didn't. But on this particular one, because they have conferenced with the president before uh, in recent weeks and months, and even McCarthy a couple days ago when he met with the president just reassured him we're not going in that direction and then he still did it so that that's a and they know that this is a big item that biden has repeated again and again and again and many of the leadership uh democrat leader has repeated again and again and again in spite of republicans trying to say no that's not what we're we're doing that's not what we're interested in it's not on the table at all And so, you know, I was shocked, quite frankly, I'm an independent, so I'm in the middle on this. But I was shocked, quite frankly, that Biden took that opportunity to knowingly 
knowingly misrepresent a serious issue for the many millions of people in the country, seriously misrepresent it to the American people. And when he knows it's not true. Yeah, uh, you know, Roger, Roger, well said. That's uh, not togetherness. Well stated. And uh, I appreciate the the call. But um, I think when you do that, whatever party does it. And now we've seen both parties behave in what I consider to be a very rude manner. Whatever party does it. It's just you lose the moral high ground as soon as you do that. Let's say you're right on the facts. Um, when you take this kind of, I'm going to call it repulsive approach to statesmanship, that's what becomes the issue and not the the substance of what you're talking about initially. The behavior and I'm not sure how many legislators we're talking about here. Sounded like more than two. Sounded like more than three. It sounded like you're talking maybe 10 or 11 people, maybe more. But the behavior of a group of legislators last night, in my view, and I think you know me uh, and you have listened to me hopefully long enough to know that whether it's Democrats or Republicans doing this, I would say the same thing. But the behavior of a sizable group of legislators was outrageous and disgusting. When you get into screaming and catcalling at the president during the State of the Union, it's almost obscene. Um, I think free speech is great. Look, I make my living in the free speech business. But I think free speech is wonderful. But so is decorum. So is courtesy. And when... You know, when I remember being in the sixth grade in Miss Laporte's social studies class, we'd have current events, right? And you'd have to explain what you saw in the State of the Union, give your opinion on it, talk about what happened, be able to answer questions about it. And I'm just thinking of kids in school today, if they still do that thing, if there is anything resembling civics education in schools, and I'm I'm assuming there are in, in many schools, but the kids that are going to be in school today – and have to kind of analyze why dozens, I'll say, I don't know how many exactly there were, of dozens of public servants were screaming and catcalling. This kind of lack of decorum was just unthinkable when I started paying attention to the State of the Union. And now, to David's point, not only is it conceivable, it's now the norm. It's the norm. And I think that's a real, real shame. Uh, so, uh, I, I again, I would have a tough time voting for uh, somebody who would behave in such a manner. So, um, I don't know about you. 800-848-9222. I'll continue to take your calls in a moment. I did want to mention this because I think this is a really interesting story. I love stories like this because I'm a gambler, right? And... Um, you always love a story of somebody getting rich after not wagering a lot of money. And would you believe it if I told you, and you hear stories about this often enough, a rare painting was bought for $600 and it just sold for $3 million. This, an oil painting with the title, A Study for St. Jerome, and uh, it's quite beautiful, actually. 
It was by an artist by the name of Sir Anthony Van Dyke. I don't know if it's Van Dyke or Van Dyck, but whatever it is, it's Sir Anthony. So this painting by Sir Anthony Van Dyke was just sold at auction for $3.1 million. This painting, you want to know how it was discovered? So this painting had bird droppings on the back of it, and it was discovered in a farm shed in Kinderhook, New York, in the late 20th century, according to Business Insider. By the way, speaking of presidential politics, Kinderhook, um, you know, that was Martin Van Buren's nickname, Old Kinderhook. And uh, that's part of the that's part of the etymology or the part of the origin of the, the term OK. You ever hear somebody say OK or you're OK? That comes from Old Kinderhook and Martin Van Buren. But it was a local collector by the name of Albert Roberts. He believed the painting was from the Dutch Golden Age, and he bought this painting for $600. Roberts said it was in pristine condition, and it happens to include bird droppings on the back. (laughs) The artwork was later identified by an art historian by the name of Susan Barnes as a surprisingly well-preserved oil sketch by this 17th century Flemish artist, Anthony Van Dyke. This painting was auctioned by Sotheby's for $3.1 million, a portion of which will go towards the Albert B. Roberts Foundation, which provides financial support to artists and other charities. Now, why is this painting so valuable? Why is this oil sketch so significant? The sketch, if you look at it, it's interesting. It depicts a a new... I'm going to... I'll post a photo of it on my uh, Facebook page so you could... You can see what what we're talking about here. But this sketch portrays a nude elderly man. Uh, And my Facebook page, by the way, is uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. And you can see some of the article on this and uh, what the painting looks like. It's a nude elderly man. And he is, um, I don't know how you'd say, he's looking down. He's kind of slumped over. And uh, it was painted between 1615 and 1618 for Van Dyck's later painting, St. Jerome. St. Jerome is currently at um, at a museum in the Netherlands. The oil sketch is an impressive and important find that, according to the art world, it helps us understand more about the artist's methods as a young man. So it's almost like, I think, if you were to discover a first draft of the Declaration of Independence. This is the artistic equivalent to that. You kind of see what led to what we then know as a masterpiece. So it's really interesting uh, that uh, I love stories like this, of finding a painting, buying it for $600, and then being able to sell it for $3 million. 800-848-9222. You want to talk State of the Union, or if you've ever found a $3 million painting, for $600. I'd love to hear about that as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. 
They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is another Diana Falzone suggestion, not a suggestion, but request on uh, her birthday. She's 40 years old today. Big fan of Diana Falzone. Great broadcaster. And uh, I think she's got a, a young son, so she doesn't like doing these crazy hours. But I'd have her on once a week if she was willing. She's great. All right. Hey, do you remember when we were talking about uh, people being brain dead the other day? Well, I got a call from uh, Evelyn in New Jersey, who's just terrific. And uh, she said, well, what if somebody comes back? You know, and uh, basically I said something to the effect of, well, people don't come back for being dead, brain dead or otherwise. This is precisely what I said. I truly believe in miracles. What if the brain dead person woke up? Uh, well, so, I mean, it's never happened before in history. I mean, that's the same as saying, what if um, a person that's actually dead comes back from to, to life? Now, I know Lazarus did it. I know Jesus Christ did it. But in terms of modern medical science, there's never been an instance of someone dead coming back to life. Well, apparently I have egg on my face, very expensive egg, because an unidentified 82-year-old woman was pronounced dead Saturday morning just after 11 a.m. And this is one of those articles that 20 people sent me yesterday. 20 people. Um An unidentified 82-year-old woman was pronounced dead Saturday morning after 11 a.m. at the Water's Edge Rehab and Nursing Center on Long Island. She was taken to the O.B. Davis funeral home a few hours later. And then she was found breathing. Oh, my God. And then, thankfully, the woman was taken to the hospital, according to the AP. Now, we don't know if she was actually dead, but she was declared dead. So the New York wow. Attorney General's Office and the Health Department are investigating. Uh, out of respect for the privacy and the confidentiality of the families, they're not revealing any other information. She's not been identified, and there's no update on the woman's condition. We don't know if she's alive or dead. Certainly, if you're listening, we hope you're alive. But what's amazing to me is this. This is the second time in the last month that this has happened. Oh, my goodness. A similar situation happened in Iowa on January 3rd, according to a report 
from the Iowa Department of Inspection and Appeals. A staff member at the Glen Oaks Alzheimer's Special Care Center in Urbandale reported that a 66-year-old woman had died around 6 a.m. And then it turns out the AP reported the woman was put in a body bag and taken to a funeral home and crematory where she was reportedly found breathing by workers. Now, I don't think that these two women, the Iowa woman and the New York woman, are the 21st century Lazarus. But I think this is more a reflection of people not double-checking whether or not people are dead before declaring them dead. Is it too much to ask that if you declare someone dead, that they actually be dead? Now, who knows? Maybe to Evelyn's point, this is uh, miracles. You know, could be. I think it's more likely that these people weren't really dead. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. We have a a full bank of calls. I'm going to get to all of you after the top of the hour. Uh, Your recaps on the State of the Union, if you want to yell at me for my comments about the State of the Union, if you have questions about Star Trek II, whatever the case may be, 800-848-9222. We are going to talk with the director of Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Nicholas Meyer. He was also the director of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. We're going to talk about that and some of his other work uh, as well. This is The Other Side of Midnight. By the way, we want to encourage you to join our Facebook group because uh, there are like five or six nuts that are dominating the conversation. And the more normal people join the group, the more those nuts kind of get drowned out. So go to Facebook.com slash group slash Radio Morano. And I don't mean to disparage anyone by calling them a nut, but you kind of know. It's like the Supreme Court's definition of pornography. You know it when you see it. Facebook.com slash group slash Radio Moreno. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. We're going to be joined in just a few minutes by the director of Star Trek II, Star Trek VI, the writer of Star Trek IV, the writer of the uh, terrific TV motion picture or TV film uh, The uh, Day After, and a bunch of other things as well. He's got a new Sherlock Holmes book as well, Nicholas Meyer, and uh, I'm going to hopefully brush up on my Star Trek II knowledge as I get ready to ask uh, William Shatner some questions about it on uh, Friday and Saturday. Meantime, so we're going to take your calls in a moment, 800-848-9222. Students at George Washington University may soon be cheering on their NCAA sports teams, this is not a joke, by yelling, Go Fog! Or fog riders, or fog hoppers, or even blue fog. That is according to an unauthorized disclosure of what is being called an undemocratic new GW moniker process to pick a new name for their sports teams. That's the word from public interest law professor John Bonzoff. Those were the leading names that GWU students in six different focus groups, each featuring a few selected students viewed behind a one-way mirror, are being asked to choose to replace the nearly century-old sports team name 
the Colonials. The other options presented to the students include cavalry, ambassadors, fireworks, firecrackers, sentinels, monumentals, independence, and the buzz, according to this insider. Reportedly, no students in that group objected to the fog, which was the most popular nickname among the options which had previously voted to abandon the name Colonials. The origins of the apparent frontrunner, the frog, as excuse me, the fog, as well as fog riders, fog hoppers, or blue fog, was a lighthearted discussion at a local bar between several students and their family. Supposedly, it's based upon GWU's location in Foggy Bottom, which most of the country watching or reading about the games probably will not be aware of. It's also uh, an obscure battle that George Washington won because it was so foggy. And an even more obscure link, even fewer sports fans, including GWU students, will be aware of. This is just ridiculous. I don't understand what was wrong with the Colonials. As Professor Jonathan Turley of George Washington University explained, the country was founded by Colonials who forged a new vision for democratic processes and individual freedoms. This kind of misunderstanding and exaggerated political correctness really isn't surprising since GWU students and my sister went there. And you know what? My father paid a lot of money for her to go there, have also signed a petition asking their university to ban the stick figure used on lighted crosswalk signs on campus because they feel oppressed because the figure appears to be that of a white man. My goodness. All right, 800-848-9222. Very quickly here, because we're going to go to uh, Nicholas Meyer in a minute. Ed is on Staten Island. Hello, Ed. Oh, yeah, Frank. I, I think uh, a lively debate is healthy. I mean, you're, uh, I used to date this girl uh, who lived near New Dorp Lane, and every Sunday I'd go to dinner, and uh, there was an Italian family, and uh, everybody talked over each other. And if you ever watched the House of Commons, I mean, they have lively debates. I mean, it's not like... The Greek Parliament, where they get into fistfights, or the Iraqi Parliament, where people got taken out and shot by Saddam Hussein. Well, hey, uh, I guess that's something to aspire to. We'll get there soon. Look, I think there's a big difference between going out to dinner with your girlfriend's family and getting into a a lively debate over a plate of pasta. No, 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 you're wrong. Well, all right. Well, I I, I could tell by the fact that guy. I can tell. I can tell by the fact that you're interrupting me, Ed, that you would have no problem with a lack of decorum uh, when the president is giving it address. So uh, I guess we'll agree to disagree. 800-848-9222. Nicholas Meyer, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. There are generally two camps of people that listen to this program. I'm sure there's more than two, but uh, uh, the third-party candidate listeners never get the attention that they might deserve. There are the camps of people that absolutely love hearing me talk about my personal life, the different trials and tribulations that I'm dealing with, the different inconveniences that people have to go through on a regular basis. And then there's other people that couldn't care less about that and say uh, that's the part that they change the channel or fast forward through the podcast. Well, 
even in the first camp of people, back when I had my computer crap out in October, I was going on and on so much about it, whining about it to such a large extent that even the people who say they love hearing about that degree of my personal life, they said, okay, Frank, enough is enough. We get it. You lost your computer. You lost a lot of the stuff on there. Sorry, but move on. Well, a funny thing happened uh, this week because this was the first time since my computer crapped out in October that I was actually glad that I lost everything that was on my old laptop. That's because back in September, I got to interview someone that I have admired as a writer, a novelist, a screenwriter, a director, a producer for a long time, Nicholas Meyer. And I did a deep dive into Nicholas Meyer's work. I mean, you talk not only his work on Star Trek II, Star Trek VI, time after time, everything. And uh, lo and behold, we got to speak and I didn't get to ask a fraction of the questions that I was eager to ask. So then lo and behold, uh, we convinced him to come back for a return engagement today, but I didn't have any of my original notes. So this week I got to go back and do a similar deep dive on the work, the life and times of Nicholas Meyer. And it was great. And I will tell you, going back and reading the work of Nicholas Meyer or seeing some of it on the screen, it holds up uh, just as well today as it did uh, 40 or 45 years ago. And I am thrilled to welcome back noted novelist, screenwriter, director, producer, whose credits include The 7% Solution, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. And I could keep going, but we only have a four-hour program. Mr. Meyer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Uh, I'm blushing here. Thank you. I'm very pleased to be asked back. So uh, one of the reasons I was eager to have you back this week is uh, this Friday and Saturday, I'm actually moderating a Q&A following a screening of Star Trek to the Wrath of Khan with William Shatner. And I'm tasked with interviewing William Shatner before 800 to 1,000 adoring Star Trek fans and asking questions about the movie that you wrote and directed, Star Trek II. So I figured... I can't think of a better person to get a question, sort of a, a cheat sheet question from, than you. If you, if you were uh, in my position and not having directed the film, not having written the film, what would you ask? Oh, wow. Um, I think the trick, and it, it, it may be a trick that, that, can't, that can't work, is to try to get Bill to introspect and not to sort of give you his public persona. I would ask him about his experiences in space, Mm. because this is the guy who actually went where very few people have gone. He did it, as I understand it, as a guy in his 90s. Um, And I want to know what he thought of that and how or if he relates it to anything that happened before in regard to his Star Trek experiences. Because I think I heard him uh, talk about how different the reality was than everything that he had understood 
Well, yeah, that is absolutely on my list. I'm definitely going to uh, ask him about that, and he seems pretty eager to chat about that. I I am curious. You know, it's been over 40 years since Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan came out, and a lot of people say this is the film that saved the franchise. A lot of people still say that this is the best of the Star Trek films. I'm curious. Obviously, I'm sure you're proud of the accolades that this film has gotten over the years. But I do wonder, you know, it's been 40 years. Do you ever get tired of interviewers, fans, average ordinary people that you might meet at the grocery store or the deli asking you about your work from 40 years ago? As proud as you might be of that work, do you ever feel sort of, I don't know, trapped by the success of something that happened four decades ago? Well, I might if it had been the only thing that had happened or that that has happened since, it, there, there are actors and artists who get associated with one thing, and that's all anybody wants to talk to them about. Eugene O'Neill's father was trapped as an actor. All people wanted to see him play was the Count of Monte Cristo. They didn't want to talk or see anything else he did. George Reeves was Superman on mm. TV. It. Clayton Moore was the Lone Ranger. That's it. But I, you know, I, I get asked about other stuff, and I do other stuff, whether it's Star Trek II or Star Trek IV or Star Trek VI or the day after my nuclear war movie that changed Ronald Reagan's mind about a winnable nuclear war and sent him off to Reykjavik to sign the intermediate-range missile treaty with Gorbachev, or the Sherlock Holmes stuff, or my two Philip Roth, you know, I'm, I'm Sure. No, you're my... as prolific as, as, as anybody. I, uh, I, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, I have to say, I am grateful. Why would I look down my nose or any other portion of my anatomy at people <laughs> who, who were made happy or moved by something that I did that so far uh, continues to delight and, and please them. I think it would be uh, churlish on my part to say, you know, oh, please, if it was just, you know, the Maybe if it was only that one thing and nobody had ever paid any attention to anything else, maybe I might be more uh, bad-tempered about it, but not at all. I'm, I just am bewildered and, and touched. And I also, I have to say, I hear interesting things about the movie from people. Uh, you would think that they would sort of run out of the things there are that cliched questions about Ricardo Montalban's chest or the way uh, Bill screams out Khan. But there's other things that are uh, really interesting to me. I was talking with a screenwriter friend and who was telling me about how much he loved the movie, and I said something to the effect that my favorite shot in the movie was when the crew of the Enterprise starts ripping up the grating in the torpedo bay so mm. they can launch a torpedo. And I said, I realize that this shot is a complete anachronism and is stolen from every Errol Flynn, Michael Kirchhoff movie that I ever grew up watching and doesn't make any sense. And he said to me, what are you talking about? The electricity was out. 
They had to pull everything up by hand. <laughs> he had made up, and he had met me halfway. He, he had met me halfway. He he was so into the movie that it didn't seem like an anachronism to him at all. He, you know, he just went with it and found a reason why that had to happen. And that's real collaboration between the the artist and the audience. Uh, I love it. Uh, that's great. And uh, I'm glad ab- about your answer as well, because now I don't feel guilty asking you about Star Trek II, uh, which uh, which I might have had you not uh, had you not said that. Uh, this is the first time that you and I have spoken since the passing of Kirstie Alley. Uh, Star Trek II was, of course, her first film. She is terrific in that film. As Savick, I'm wondering if you can speak to what it was like working with Kirstie Alley in that film as an actor and as a performer. What was she like? She was a delight. Uh, I had no idea about a lot of her background other than that she was in Wichita. I think she has since confessed that she, you know, made up her resume, which I also have no memory of. Um I just remember being uh, very sort of um, set back on my heels by what I took to be her originality, her eccentricity, a kind of an offbeat quality, and also her enthusiasm. Mm. Uh, It it went beyond, as I experienced it, an, an actor who was eager for a part, but represented some deep identification, which in in later years, when I learned about all the things that had happened in her own life and her difficulties and stuff, I think that her identification with Spock, her identification with Trek, was probably something that it was, it was more than a passion. It was something that sort of saved her um, or oriented her or gave her some guidance which she seemed otherwise to be missing if i understood her correctly we're talking with nicholas meyer and uh, if you're a fan of sherlock holmes you're going to want to check out his most recent novel return of the pharaoh which i have not read uh, but i did read uh, some previous uh, sherlock holmes material that you've written and uh, everybody is talking about the return of the pharaoh it's getting a lot of uh, buzz not just among sherlock holmes fans but among other audiences as well and i want to ask you about that in a moment but as far as star trek to goes. One of the things that I think a lot of people, a lot of Star Trek fans that regard this as the best of the franchise or the film that saved the franchise, one of the things they may not realize is the budget restrictions that you were under as compared to the first movie, because the the second film, in a lot of respects, just looks so great and in many respects looks superior uh, to the first film. What? How much of a handicap were those budget restrictions and how much did that factor into the kind of story you were trying to tell visually and otherwise? I have a theory that art thrives on restrictions, that when you can't simply throw a lot of money at stuff, you are forced to be uh, perhaps more inventive, more creative. Um, one of my favorite movies of all time is the Laurence Olivier movie Henry V from the Shakespeare play. And Henry V was shot in the middle of World War II on a budget that must have been $6.75. And it, it looks 
like millions were spent. And that movie had a big influence on my life. I hmm. saw it the time when I was 13 years old, I think, and I just kept watching. You could sit in the movie again and again and again and again. And it was the first time I ever got why Shakespeare was great, why he was great, why this movie was fantastic. And I watched it until the theater closed. My, my folks had no idea where I was. Um, but I had a religious experience. I was all of Tarsus struck blind on the road to Damascus. <laughs> and art thrives on restrictions. So all I was trying to do was sort of make the movie that I was trying to make. I wasn't thinking about the budget of the other movie. I, wa I was using hand-me-down sets. I was using hand-me-down sort of everything. Um and special effects from the other movie and whatever. It didn't matter to me. Um, I was trying to write a script, which I had cobbled together from five other previous drafts to make a second movie. The stories were all different in each five scripts. And I didn't think in terms of money. I just thought in terms of what did I want to see and how much popcorn did I want to get through while I was mm. watching? And because if you start thinking in terms of money, you'll start pulling your punches or thinking that more money is going to save it or something like that. So I, rightly or wrongly, it was only the second movie I'd ever directed. I wasn't thinking about that. I wasn't thinking about French. I didn't know what a franchise was. I, I didn't know what the word meant. Um, I was just working on that one movie, and all I was thinking about was submarines and destroyers and battleships and the Navy in outer space. Um, and so it was what was going on inside the ships and what was going on outside the ships. And I sort of bisected thinking about the movie in terms of an indoor-outdoor movie. That's all I really remember sure. about. I, I don't think I was thinking in terms of we don't have enough money. On Star Trek VI, we didn't have enough money, and that was really a drag. I, I, I'm so surprised to hear that because I would think the final cr final voyage of the original Enterprise crew would have been a, a big priority financially and otherwise for Paramount. And I'm also surprised to see to hear that because I've seen the film so many times, probably hundreds of times, and the visuals and the special effects and the makeup are uh, so impressive. I mean, the scene alone on uh, Gorkin's ship where uh, they lose the gravitational field and everybody's floating around and you see them kicking these uh, goblets of purple blood floating in the air. I mean, that is, to this day, more than 30 years later, as compelling uh, a visual image and a, as, as great a special effect as anything that I've seen. And yet you're, you say that you guys didn't have enough money. Well, what happened was when the movie was proposed to me, which is when I was living in London, they said $30 million, and I said, okay. And by the time I got to Los Angeles and rented a place in 
in Los Angeles for my family and whatever. They, they said, now we're talking about $25 million. And I said, oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> we're talking about $30 million because when I was taken to lunch at Claridge's, no less, um, I was told 30 and I can do it for 30. I can't do it for 25. Um, now, what had happened, which they didn't want to talk about, was that the feature division at Paramount had been hemorrhaging red ink for the previous five or six months mm. as a feature after another feature after another feature, some of them costing $40 million a pop, had all tanked. So suddenly there was a lot of musical chairs going on for executives, and they were getting cold feet about $30 million. And I said, look, you, you have $14 million above the line in this movie. That's how much the director, the writer, and the basic Star Trek cast is going to cost you. That's $14 million before anything right. has happened. Right. So now you've got, what, $2 million in special effects or $2 million in post-production and music and so forth. Now we're up to $19 million. Where's the movie? You know... They said, <laughs> would you excuse us for a minute? Um, so <laughs> they they went away for 20 minutes while my team sort of just sat there. And then they came back and they said, uh, okay, 27. And I said, guys, you're under a misapprehension. I'm not negotiating with you. I'm, I'm giving you information. And I went through it again, and I said, look, Star Trek The Motion Picture, 1979, cost $45 million. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, was an 11.2, made by Mrs. Meyer's oldest. But every movie <laughs> since, every Star Trek, has cost 41% more than its predecessor. But you got up to Star Trek V, that was $30 million. I'm willing to do Star Trek VI for the same amount as five, which is like two years ago. But you can't get blood from a turnip, and this isn't going to happen. And then they started saying that I wasn't a team player. <laughs> I just sat there getting angrier and angrier. And I said, forget this. I'm going to the big cheese. I'm going to explain the whole thing. I went to the Big Cheese, and I laid it all out for him. Big Cheese was very polite. Thank you for explaining it. Thank you for showing me the top sheet. And then he canceled the movie. <laughs> oh, jeez. So then what happened? How did the film get back on track, and with what budget? Well, the movie was over, and I I thought, gee, I, I have a six-month lease on a house in Beverly Hills. I'm <laughs> here. I... How do I go home and tell my wife as I'm throwing objects from my desk into a carton? And I was really shocked because I didn't think that would happen. And I took one sort of last look. I was walking on the empty soundstage where we were supposed to be shooting something. And in those days, before portable phones, you know, cell phones, there was a phone that was always on a on a on a stand in the in the soundstage had a little light on it so that if it rang while you were shooting, 
the bell didn't ring, just the little light went off, so you'd know there was a phone call. And so I'm standing there alone in this huge thing, and I see the light blink. <laughs> Who could that be for? So like a schmuck, you know, I, I picked up, hello. Um, and I, I picked it up. It was Stanley Jaffe, for whom I had written a great deal of um, Fatal Attraction. And he said, uh, Sherry, Sherry and I, meaning Sherry Lansing, uh, are, are are taking over, running the studio. I hear you got a problem. I said, yeah, I need $5 million. And he said, you got it. And that was how we went back on. Wow, thank goodness. From a fan's perspective, uh, what a sin it would have been if that film uh, was never made. Uh, uh, really briefly on Star Trek Six, because I really want to talk with you about uh, the return of the Pharaoh, which uh, I have heard nothing but great things about, and it sounds like it's led to when some... Where plan to read it, I have to ask? Uh, well, so uh, this is my struggle these days, is with a 14-month-old, my uh, time that is not reading, or excuse me, not sleeping or working, I have to been, be very judicious with, uh, with how I'm choosing to... Uh, to use okay. my reading time, but I will read it. I, 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 you're good enough to come on the program and uh, and submit yourself to my interrogation. So I will, and I did enjoy the seven percent solution uh, immensely. So uh, I will happily read any Sherlock Holmes tale that uh, that you write. But l- let me uh, just end end with this on the Star Trek Six front. There's obviously a very prominent Vulcan female character in that picture, just as there was in Star Trek II. But unlike Star Trek II, III, IV in the movies where the Vulcan was Savick, it's a different character played by Kim Cattrall, but very similar to Savick in a lot of respects. I know that the original idea was to have that character be Savick. Why wasn't the character Savick? Even if there had to be a different actress than Kirstie Alley or Robin Curtis, why not keep the character the same as Savick? Well, I guess you can argue this a lot of different ways. To me, just as a as a fan, I could never see anybody but Kirstie in the role. Um, I, I didn't want to see yet another Savick. Uh, I suppose we're now used to seeing, you know, everybody and his brother play James Bond. Um, But for those of us who started with Sean Connery, um, it's Mm. hard to get your head around whatever. I I suppose there are other people who've done it. For example, there have been a million people, and probably close to a million, who've played Hamlet. Mm. And we don't say, you know... Richard Burbage, the first Hamlet uh, back in, you know, 15, whatever it was, uh, he's the only Hamlet. Everybody and his brother, sooner or later, plays Hamlet. So there have been many great Hamlets. I'm not sure, but my favorite isn't Mel Gibson. That's a great Hamlet. Um, But I just, maybe because of the way I met and cast and 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 use Kirsty. If it wasn't going to be Kirsty, I was just going to say let's let's create mm-hmm. another character. I I don't want to be angry at an actress for not being Kirsty the whole time. Um, that makes sense. And so much of that film is 
an allegory, very obvious, for what was happening on Earth at the time and what was going on with the Cold War at the time. There are analogies to uh, Chernobyl and the Soviet Union and Gorbachev and uh, the United States and the Federation. It's really interesting. And it's interesting to me that that followed the work that you did on The Day After, which uh, you alluded to was a, a TV movie, but so much more than that. It was a TV event. More than 100 million people watched that film during its initial broadcast, a 62 share. It's difficult to imagine anything on any network, even if you put it on all the networks, getting a a, a 62 share. I think a lot of people have seen the film, but now that we're kind of starting to talk about the possibility of armed conflict with Russia again, and you have the possibility... Or three, yes. Go yeah. on. <laughs> well, right, and you have this very real possibility of the two biggest nuclear powers on uh, the Earth coming to blows again. I think people may be looking to give the day after a uh, another another look. And when I interviewed Steve Gutenberg recently, we talked a little bit about this. I'm wondering if you can speak to the role the Department of Defense played, if any, in the production of this film. Were they cooperative? Did they stonewall you? Did they give you information? Did they give you a hard time? What was their role as you were trying to make this film? Well, let me explain to your listeners who may be unfamiliar with it that the movie, which was aired in 1983, was on ABC, and it depicted a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. But it did not depict it from the point of view of politicians or or from the military point of view or the political point of view. It depicted it from the point of view of Lawrence, Kansas, which is more or less the geographic center of the continental United States, give or take. And it was just about regular people, people like us who were just doing their normal stuff, and then they get nuked. And the Department of Defense offered us cooperation. They could have, we could have anything we wanted on one condition, and that was that we ensured that to depict that the Soviet Union started the war. We told them to go take a hike. So that was the end of the cooperation from the Defense Department. That was it. Oh, wow. Uh, it's still, I mean, it's still a uh, an incredible film and one that, uh, that people talk about uh, this many years later. It, one of the things that I am really interested in, in seeing with The Return of the Pharaoh, which is uh, the latest Sherlock Holmes novel that you've done, is seeing how Sherlock Holmes, who people might have be might have read in different scenarios over the years, different adventures, solving different mysteries, both in your work, other writers' work, and of course in Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's work, I don't know that they've seen him in Egypt before. Why did you choose to put Sherlock Holmes in Egypt? How did that come about? Well, Conan Doyle, again, to give your listeners some background, the There are 60 Sherlock Holmes stories written by Arthur Conan Doyle, four novellas and 56 short stories. The short stories being the really great, Mm -hmm. that's the meat of it. Um, Since I got involved, I've now written 
five of these novels, and I'm working on my sixth. And what I found is that most of the time, I think almost all the time, uh, Holmes is always in England. Uh, 90% of the time he's in London, but occasionally he goes uh, out of town to work on mysteries. But I found that my own creative juices got flowing when I would take Holmes out of his normal uh, train set of train tracks and put him in a different place, a, a fish out of Thames water, if you like. Mm-hmm. So in the 7% solution, he goes to Vienna. In the uh, the uh, Canary Trainer, which was where uh, the West End Horror, West End Horror is all in London, but the Canary Trainer, he's in Paris. In the Adventure of the Peculiar Protocol, he's in Russia. And my agent, uh, Alan Gasmer, to whom the book is dedicated, said, what about homes in Egypt? And I really loved this idea for several reasons. I had been in Egypt uh, many years ago and had was fascinated by Egypt, by archaeology, had gone inside the Great Pyramid, which you enter through the robber's entrance, which is... It's just a hole that you crawl, sort of as if you were crawling to the top of the Empire State Building, because it's very tall, but you're doing it on an angle, and you can't turn around, because there's people behind you, blah, blah. Um, And I've always been interested in archaeology, and Holmes's chronology, uh, which is to say his life, coincides with the period when Egyptology, Egyptomania, uh, a lot of rich Englishmen, rich Frenchmen, rich Americans came to Egypt to look for buried treasure, to look for artifacts that they could take home. And it wasn't just Egypt. If you are following the controversy with the Elgin marble, Lord Elgin went to Greece, and took home a huge chunk of the Parthenon, which is now in the British Museum. And the Greeks would like their Parthenon back. (laughs) Understandably. It's uh, valuable enough to pay off their whole debt, which is saying quite a bit. You bet. So I thought this whole business about Egyptomania and looking for for buried treasure, particularly if you were an English nobleman who was maybe down on his luck and thought he could bail himself out by, you know, finding buried artifacts. And so one thing led to another, and I put Holmes on the case. It takes place in Egypt in 1911. So he's, you know, he's no longer a a young guy. Um, and it's also about Howard Carter, who was the guy who, in 1922, uh, uncovered the only tomb that has never been broken into, which was Tutankhamun's tomb, King Tut's tomb. This is why King Tut, who was otherwise an unremarkable pharaoh, I think he died by the time he was 19, um, 
but his tomb is the only tomb that the robbers hadn't got to. And Howard Carter found it, so I thought, put Howard Carter together with Sherlock Holmes and call it The Return of the Pharaoh. Well, I, I can't wait to read it. I mean, I, I'm uh, pretty interested in uh, ancient Egypt, and uh, there's always been uh, a tremendous fascin- fascination on my part in terms of those pyramids, the function they served for the Egyptian, the construction, as you mentioned, the uh, the fact that they were almost all uh, targeted by robbers over the years. And uh, to picture Sherlock Holmes in uh, in that world is, uh, is really something. Hey, I I had heard that you actually got to speak before the British House of Commons because of your work with uh, Sherlock Holmes. That's not something that most Americans can lay claim to. <laughs> well, um, it was the House of Commons dining room. It wasn't like I was actually in the <laughs> House of Commons. But on January 14th, this past you know a couple of weeks ago, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London invited me to be there the keynote speaker at their annual dinner, which is held inside the House of Commons, which is in the Houses of Parliament. And you have to go through metal detectors and take your watch and your belt and everything off. And But when you're once you're in there, you're in the middle of history, and there's, there's nobody around except the security guards. So I walked over a plaque where it said, on this spot, Sir Thomas More was sentenced to be beheaded. And I walked into another plaque, again, brand new plaque, on this spot, Queen Elizabeth II lay in state. So it was a brand new plaque. And then you walk into this, uh, the Sherlock Holmes Society of London, uh, and they were having dinner in the House of Commons, about uh, 120 people, House of Commons uh, dining room, I should specify. And I and I got to uh, give a talk. I was the keynote speaker, and I, the talk I gave was called "Under the Influence," which was a subject about things that influence you. And I said that you know probably there are two kinds of influences, broadly speaking, the influences that you're aware of, that you're conscious of, and then the ones that you've absorbed, but you don't even know that they've influenced you. Um, and I said, I think childhood are influences of of people, of experiences, of scenery, of art, are, are maybe the most vivid, the most long-lasting. We, we say it's at an impressionable age, mm. an impressionable age. That's when things seem to make themselves so deeply felt, things that you experienced when you were a kid. So it was a kind of open-ended talk about things that influenced, and then things that you don't even know. You know, going back to the wrath of Khan, I realized, I think, 30 years later, maybe 35 years later, that there was a movie that I absolutely loved, hadn't seen it in years, that totally influenced the climax of the movie, and it was the it's a movie called The Enemy Below, and it starred Robert Mitchum as the captain of a destroyer and Kurt Jurgens as the captain of a Nazi U-boat. And it's about this Mutara Nebula duel between the destroyer and the submarine. Um, it was also directed by a director that nobody ever 
would know in a trillion years that the greatest trivia question of all, who directed The Enemy Below, was Dick Powell. You're kidding. No, uh, I, I'm not kidding. Th- that is that is wild. Uh, for people that don't know, uh, Dick Powell was uh, an incredible musician, an actor, and a guy who kind of uh, came to fame as uh, Detective Philip Marlowe uh, back in the day. Uh, that is wild. I had no idea he directed anything. Not a, he directed. Uh, yeah, he uh, he produced a lot of television with Charles Boyer and David Niven. I think they had a company called Four Star productions i'm trying to remember who the fourth star was he also directed a movie that i've never seen that i've always wanted to see i suspect it's not a very good movie um it was called the conqueror it was a howard hughes Hmm. production and starred john wayne as genghis khan and they filmed it in saint george utah and everybody involved in the movie died of cancer because they were all exposed mm. to nuclear radiation from the nuclear testing sites and they they didn't know how lethal it was so John Wayne and Susan Howard uh, Hayward and uh, Dick Powell and uh, a, a lot of people on that movie um, but I've never seen it. I don't, I, and I don't even know where to see. Yeah, it. I, I've heard the story about the the cancer fallout from that as well. I've never seen the film either, Mr. Meyer. Unfortunately, we're out of time. I uh, do hope you'll come back soon, and I am hoping by the next time we speak, I will have read Return of the Pharaoh. It's available on Amazon or wherever books are sold. If people want to check it out, uh, thank you so much for the time, as always. Well, thank you. It was fun. If you want to comment on any portion of my discussion with Nicholas Meyer, you're welcome to give me a call, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is 
Watchtower, Jimi Hendrix. This is a birthday bumper music selection by Rob Taub. Rob Taub is an interesting guy. He is a terrific writer. He's been a radio talk show host. He's been a guest on this show. He has been uh, a health advocate, very big in the diabetes advocacy movement. Very interesting that the two of the people who have birthdays today, who uh, we've allowed to select bumper music, are both health ambassadors. In the case of Diana Falzone, it's endometriosis. In the case of Rob Taub, it's diabetes. Very interesting how that works out. But uh, happy birthday, Rob Taub. And uh, thank you for this Jimi Hendrix selection. Hope uh, all of your wishes come true today. All right, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me begin with Mark in Baltimore from WCBM land. Hello, Mark. Frank, great interview. Informational, inspirational, and all that. Great, great questions asked. Great questions answered. Most importantly, no commercial breaks during that interview. An interview straight through. A lot of time there, so thank you for that. Well, thank you, Mark. I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. I wish you were in the New York area. You could come see Star Trek Two with uh, Bill Shatner and me this weekend. But uh, hopefully we'll get down to Baltimore one of these days. Thank you very much. That'd be terrific. We'll work on that. Thank you. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Robert is in Manhattan. Hello, Robert. Hey, Hey, good morning, Frank. Great interview. Okay, Thank you. Two, some very quick things. Dick Powell, if he is the same Dick Powell, great singer, on the radio in the Golden Age, he also played in The Adventures of Richard Diamond, another great detective series on radio. Great singer. Oh, I didn't, I, yeah, I, I, knew, I know about him, obviously, as a singer. Okay. He's got a great yeah, Atlantic now, City song, believe it or not. Yeah, but, uh... right. Now, The Conqueror, one of the worst movies. You're not missing anything. <laughs> it was once described to me as an Eastern Western, an upset on that. Now, you asked um, Meyer a question, a great question. People ask him over and over, over, Rathokan, 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 40 years. I can understand that. Let me give you some very quick examples. When I think of the actress Faye Ray, there is only one right. role Kong. to me, sure. Faye Ray. And Darrow, and Darrow. I don't care how many movies. I never want to see any. I don't want any of their titles. Let me give some other examples. If you know the actor Bruce Dern, great character actor in a lot of westerns, he never played any nice guy. I never want to see him in any movie where he's donating money to the Little Sisters of the Poor or building orphanages. He is a super psychopath, sociopath. My best you know, it's example. funny that you say that because, um, and I hope I'm not telling any tales out of school here, but I believe this is something that he's talked about publicly. But my friend really? and colleague, uh, Joe Piscopo, has said that of uh, all the guest stars on Saturday Night Live in the five or six years that he was there, the the guest host, um, the only one that stood out as a real major jerk ex- to the extreme and to the extent that he would harass the women that were on the show and things like that. He, the Bruce only Dern? one that he said was Bruce Dern. And Joe is a now, guy you, who loves you know. everybody. He tries to find the best of everybody. He couldn't find a good thing to say about Bruce Dern. Now, let me give you one last quick example. Michael Dunn. To me, I know Michael Dunn, when it comes to people, he was little, Alex, little Alexander on Plato's Stepchildren. To me, Michael Dunn will always be Dr. Miguelito Loveless, who appeared ten times in the great series Wild Wild West. Ten times he showed up as a villain. 
Uh, you know, I, I I have not seen much of Wild Wild West, honestly. Oh, you should. Uh, you should. I, it, it's a marvelous series. No, I, I, I've it, seen it, a, a bit of it, but uh, not enough uh, Not enough to, to know anything about it, I quite frankly. Oh, sorry, Robert. Uh, Carol in New Jersey, very quickly. Hello, uh, Carol. Hi there, Frank. Uh, your interview with Mr. Meyer was wonderful, and um, Henry V with Laurence Olivier was, is one of my favorite films of all time. And I wanted to mention that movie was made in Ireland because it was during the war. They couldn't make it in England. So uh, that movie was filmed in Ireland, actually. I did not know that. Uh, I appreciate you mentioning that. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Carol. Appreciate that. All right. Uh, 800-848-9222. Hey, Tom in New Jersey has been holding a while. Hello, Tom. Hello. Hey Tom, are you, you are you in Brick, New Jersey? No, Elizabeth. Elizabeth, okay, go ahead. What's on your mind? Yeah, I have a story. It it provided more stories out of one incident of finding a etching. But it was called the Grand Canal by Thomas of Fleck. Mm-hmm. I had no idea the wealth of uh, stories that came out of just finding that one. Etching. Well, it, it was it was um, an adventure finding I, it. Tom, I'm it glad I'm glad you found that uh, that painting. That that's great. I appreciate. It. I'm sorry we didn't have more time. Coming up next hour, would you ever take your child? This is a serious question. Would you ever take your child to a chiropractor? Have you ever taken your child to a chiropractor? Why or why not? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Until next hour, your influence counts. Be sure to use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Personally, I've always been sort of agnostic towards chiropractors. I've never really thought much about them. I know some people who call them witch doctors and other people who swear by them, who go weekly or at least monthly for regular chiropractic adjustments. My wife uh, for instance, she is uh, somebody that has battled sciatica, and uh, she had said these regular adjustments that she would get from a chiropractor really helped her. So my attitude always generally was, okay, if it works for you, that's great, but uh, it's not really something that I need to do. And then funny thing happened about, uh, I don't know, six, seven years ago thereabouts, I around there. There was a chiropractor who was advertising on the radio station that I worked at, and she was introduced to me by one of the other people at the radio station. And she comes in, and uh, I'm in the studio. We're in the radio studio. She comes in, 
And she's, uh, you know, we're talking, we're making conversation, talking about all sorts of things, health and weight loss and uh, chiropractics and all sorts of other things. And she basically, she sees me crack my neck because I am a notorious everything cracker. One of the many compulsions that I have all day long is I will crack my knuckles, I will crack my neck, I will crack my back, I crack my toes. I crack everything on my person that's crackable. And when I say I do it, I don't mean I do it once a day. I do it obsessively, obsessively, all day long I'm I'm doing it. I mean, really, just like crazy. And uh, sometimes I'll crack my wife's knuckles, right? And if I've been in relationships over the years with people who did not like cracking, and it was a real problem because one it would turn them off when I would do it to myself, but also they wouldn't let me do it to them. And I don't know what it is. I'm sure Freud in a uh, Nicholas Meyer novel would have a field day with my obsession, with my need to crack not only myself but other people. But I just love it. So Melinda, this chiropractor, sees me crack my neck and she stops the conversation. She says, what are you doing? And I said, oh, I, I don't know. I'm sorry. I didn't realize it. I, I would just crack my neck. And she said, stand up. And she has me. She said, um, hold your arm up. Hold your left arm up. And she said, don't let me, don't let me move it. Okay. And sure enough, and this is a you know relatively petite, slender woman. She presses against my arm and pushes it right down. And no, not that I'm uh, in the greatest shape in the world, but I'm a, a relatively strong fellow. But she's able to push my arm right down, my left arm. And she said, get on the floor. So I get on the floor in the radio station. Get on the floor. Dirty, filthy radio station floor. And she does something. Takes about 45 seconds. She does something to my spine or my neck. And two things happen. One, she says, get up. Hold your left arm up again. And she said, do the same thing. Don't let me move your left arm. And sure enough, I'm not able, she's not able to move my left arm. And I am putting the same effort in to not letting her move it. And she's putting the same amount of pressure into trying to move it. But in 45 seconds, I went from a situation where anybody could force my left arm down to no one, essentially could force my left arm down. And here's the other interesting thing. After that little session, which took all of 45 seconds on the floor of the radio station, after that session of her doing something to my spine, adjustment or something, I didn't really feel compelled to want to crack my neck anymore. Also, I be, sometimes I would just crack, try to go, m- do the motion of cracking my neck just because I was so in the habit of it. But... I couldn't crack it. It wouldn't make a noise. So I thought that was interesting. And that made me more of a believer in chiropractics. And I would see Melinda mostly for weight loss issues. But then um, once in a while I would go there and uh, I think just really once or twice I would get a chiropractic adjustment and it felt pretty good. But I, I didn't really spend a great deal of time thinking about a chiropractor for me because I don't really suffer from back pain or any sort of chronic pain, or any of the things that people go to routinely see a chiropractor for. But other people have seen chiropractors regularly. It's just, you know, I I don't go to the doctor as often as I should anyway 
But uh, so I'm certainly not going to make a habit of going to the chiropractor, although maybe I should because my experience was a positive one. And I know a lot of people swear by them. This is something that I am really not sure about. There is a new trend which has been popularized by, of all things, TikTok. You know, I just, again, I keep saying this, but a friend of mine is an influential TikToker. And I am going to talk to her about making this show the hottest thing on TikTok because it, the, the lesson is these days, if you want something to be popular, go on TikTok and do it. Because as terrible as TikTok is from a national security perspective, from a, an attention span perspective, from every perspective, apparently that is the thing that makes everything instantly trendy. And the next thing that I'm about to describe with respect to TikTok I don't think is a positive. Parents are increasingly taking babies to the chiropractors. And it has a lot of people asking, including an article this week in Salon.com, is it safe? These baby chiropractors are claiming that adjustments help with all sorts of issues like tongue tie or constipation or fussiness or colic or just about anything else that babies deal with. And there's this video on TikTok where this chiropractic practitioner based in uh, California says says the mom reported the baby is less fussy after receiving chiropractic care. And this video is just one of many on this particular chiropractic office's page, claiming chiropractic adjustments for the baby help with all the issues that I just mentioned. This is part of a huge trend on social media, babies at the chiropractor. How common is this? A search on TikTok with the hashtag babychiropractor yields a collection of videos with 26 million views as of last week. Many videos are of clinics, just like the one that I uh, described, promoting their work. In one, another chiropractor adjusts a crying two-week-old baby's neck, who the mom says hasn't been breastfeeding. Now, our son really didn't take to breastfeeding, I have to tell you, I would never in a million years think to bring him to a chiropractor. I mean, these babies, especially at two weeks old, I'm afraid to hold them the wrong way, let alone take them to someone that is going to be manipulating their spine. Is that just me being old-fashioned? Is that me being a nervous Nelly? Do you think there's anything to taking a baby... To the chiropractor, 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. That's the question. A question. Since before your sun burned hot in space and before your race was born, I have awaited a question. You have other videos where there are the so-called momfluencers promoting the so-called benefits of chiropractic care for newborns and infants. And in one TikTok... A mom shares with her followers how she took her two-month-old to a 
chiropractor for torticollis, which is when a baby's neck muscles cause its head to turn and rotate to one side. The baby, according to the mom, was also really irritated and wasn't eating or sleeping well. In the video, the chiropractor proceeds to grab the baby abruptly by his feet and hangs him upside down. I would never let someone do this to my son. And my son's now 14 months old, and he kind of likes rough housing and rough play and things like that. I would still never let somebody uh, do this to my son, chiropractor or not. I don't care. The mom admits that she first flipped out when the chiropractor grabbed her baby by the feet. She also claims it worked. So there are these all these videos showing babies having their backs popped, similar to an adult. So as social media posts continue to flood the Internet, people are asking the question that I think more parents are wondering about now. Should I take my baby to a chiropractor? Have you? Would you? 800-848-9222. Dr. Lena Van Der List a community pediatrician at the University of California, Davis, told Salon she absolutely is seeing more parents ask about chiropractors in her practice when new parents are looking for fast solutions to colic, reflux, constipation, breastfeeding, etc. Being a parent to a newborn is really hard. I see why families are going to throw that Hail Mary to see if there's something that they can do to help. But even as a doctor of osteopathic medicine, someone who's self-described as more open to what she says are complementary practices, Dr. Vanderlist says she's very hesitant to use chiropractic or any type of manipulation on newborns or infants. Newborns and infants, this is what the doctor is saying here, and this is very open-minded, new-age style doctor. Newborns and infants are not just little adults. They have a completely different body architecture. Their bones are soft and malleable. And so even with gentle techniques and gentle pressure, there could be an increased risk for injuries in this age group. Look, I don't um, know about medicine. I am not a medical professional. That may shock some of you. But I would never do this to my child. I mean, once you're over the age of, I don't know, 11 may I think maybe it's a different ball game but really under the uh, these are two week old children two month old children and parents are bringing them to the chiropractor I I admittedly speak from a completely naive perspective I would never do this would you have you and I know we have chiropractors that listen uh, so if you're one, would you treat a baby? 800-848-9222. I'm very skeptical about this. Dr. Colton Wood is a chiropractor, and he appeared on an ABC TV affiliate in 2020 talking about pediatric chiropractors. Oftentimes, it's the mom's intuition that brings them in, and it's oftentimes the husband or the dad who is like, oh, it's like a pediatric massage. Like, what are they going to do? And we hear that all the time. And then just throughout care, they start to see the results and it starts to speak for itself. He says it works. What have you seen? 
800-848-9222. Let me begin with John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Uh, you know, I, I won't... I don't. I won't even bother to look at any study or anything. I honestly think that is the stupidest thing you can ever do to bring a baby to a chiropractor. I, I know you're skeptical. I'm 100 percent with you. That is, I absolutely know. Like even when we go to chiropractors as adults, you got to be sure that you go to a good one because, like when they, uh, you know, when they lay you down and put your arm up and tell you to take a deep breath and they crack your back. You go to a bad chiropractor who doesn't know what he's doing or screws up, you're crippled for life. Well, you know, it's funny that you say that uh, because one of the things that I found really frightening was an interview that I did with Kevin Sorbo, who played Hercules. And, you know, I should have pulled the audio to replay it. But he described an incident where he went to a chiropractor and the chiropractor, against his wishes, cracked his neck and Kevin Sorbo ended up... Uh, suffering from a stroke shortly thereafter that he believes was attributable to this the way that this chiropractor handled his neck. So, um, yeah, I wouldn't do this, and I have to be honest, John, I'm shocked so many parents are doing this. No, it's a, it's a, it's got to be like a stupid hipster trend. I mean, it'd be one thing to, like, if you're going to, you know, if a baby has some kind of, uh, you know, like gas, or something, if you massage a baby, I could see that, but to do anything that involves quick movements or snapping something, they're, they're babies. They're too brittle. It's a, you're going to screw them up. Yeah, know? that's my view, John. It's I mean, the the potential benefit is, in my view, not worth the f- potential risk. John, thanks for the call. 800-848-9222. So, you know, uh, John mentioned studies. And that's, again, he knows me. He knows that's where I'm always looking for. What does the data say? What do the studies say? What do the numbers say? The evidence is scant on whether or not chiropractor uh, practice can help babies with things like colic or gassiness. There are some studies that claim there are benefits. The Cochrane Collaboration, which is a very, I think, pro-chiropractic group, they said in a 2012 review that the studies, quote, involved too few participants and were of insufficient quality to draw confident conclusions about the usefulness and safety of manipulative therapies. A separate study from 2007, found that adverse events may be associated with pediatric spinal manipulation. 2017, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they released a report on alternative pediatric therapies, noting that serious complications can arise with chiropractic treatment of children. The report also noted a bias against childhood vaccinations has been shown to exist in chiropractic care. That's interesting, which I wouldn't have thought. Is that the case? Is it a lot of the anti-vax parents that are bringing their children to chiropractors? And to uh, the point that John made, is this kind of a hipster, new age thing? Have you done this? 800-848-9222. Are you a pediatrician? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to... um, uh, Antonio in Brooklyn. Hello, Antonio. Hey, hi. Hi. You're the best, man. You are absolutely best. Listen. Thank you. I'm, I'm from Panama. And one of the things that growing up, we learned early on, our grandparents, parents, 
they would manipulate the babies by, you know, holding them by one leg, limb, uh, the arm, stretch to stretch us. It is a valid thing, you see. Now, I understood what you just said about the manipulation by a chiropractor. Um, there's a difference there. But you will hold a baby, and I mean gently, of course, and, and, and have it work out that way. Now, when I went to get Rolf, I would beg them for five more minutes. When you, when you went to get One what? Th- uh, Rolf. Wait, wait, tell me that word, that last word again, Antonio. Rolf, R-O-L-F. What, what does that mean, E-D. Rolf? You manipulate the fascia tissue. I see. Okay. Well, you would beg the one them for that's five minutes. Next to your bone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The one that's next to the bone. It it, it 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 does a body really good. Look it up. It does a body really good. But now, even for babies. Well, what they said to me, and I looked it up, and it, it it's absolutely true. Children from as young as thirteen should be getting massages 13 though is yes big difference from two weeks or two months no 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 not 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 no 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 not two weeks yeah so a baby but coming into its own i'm listening yeah, no, no, that's what a lot of these parents are doing, though. They're bringing children as young as two weeks or two months to a chiropractor for this kind of pediatric manipulation. Uh, understand this. Americans are excessive in just about everything they do, you see. I disagree with that. Yes, not no, the answer is not my favorite word on the planet. No. Yeah, that, that's a, a word weeks? I have a tough time with. Antonio, I love your voice. you got a great radio voice. If something ever happens to me, I hope uh, they consider you as the host of this show. I could listen to you almost as long as I could listen to uh, Dr. Sky. Thank you for the call. 800-848-9222. All right, Dr. Bob in New Jersey is a chiropractor. Uh, Bob, I'm curious about your perspective on this, clearly, you're a believer in chiropractics in general. But tell me about um, you being a chiropractor and practicing on a baby specifically. Okay. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. I'm the one that spoke to you last week on that ten question call, uh, and I got six out of ten right. Uh, I'm working out. I'm listening to your topic of conversation. You said a lot, and maybe some of the questions you have, maybe I can give you answers for. Um, I have children. I have grandchildren. And uh, yes, I have manipulated um, their spine um, from birth until now. And thank God they're very, very healthy. Uh, Remember, when the babies come out of the birth canal, the babies come out head first. And sometimes there's some twisting that takes place. And the master system in the body is the brain. And the brain is going to send signals throughout the rest of the body. If there's any kind of interference, and if there should be any kind of impingement on a nerve, that can interfere with function. You know, the first chiropractic patient was um, Harvey Lillard. He was an African-American custodian in um, Illinois, and he was deaf, and he just went to the chiropractor. He didn't go for his deafness. He just went because of mid-back pain. By adjusting his mid-back, his hearing was restored. Does that mean chiropractic restores hearing? No. 
It just happened to be that he was going for an adjustment of his spine that it, uh, opened up the pathway to allow him to hear. Um, one of my one of my first patients came from Germany, and he told me that um, the 13 year old boy he had a bedwetting problem. And he went to his medical doctor, and the medical doctor you know, told him he should put um, a cotton ball with uh, warm water on it and put it on his, um, you know, his male genitalia. And you know that warm water is only going to increase you know, someone to urinate. And someone so told him to go to a chiropractor. His father took him to a chiropractor, and this guy swears by it. And he went to his chiropractor, and after two or three treatments, his bedwetting stopped. You know, the chiropractic cure bedwetting? No, but in this case, it removed nerve interference. You know, you know your body. I mean, you yourself said you like to manipulate your joints, you like to hear your body, you know, the knuckles crack, et cetera. You know, that, that's fluids and gases escaping from the joints that you hear. But um, if it's going to restore you back to normal function, um, that's the way to go. I was one of the first chiropractors in New Jersey to work in a hospital uh, in North Jersey. And I worked in the hospital for 15 years. And uh, I had great relationships with the medical doctors, with the nurses on staff. Many of them became my patients. There, there was one nurse that in the ER. She was very skeptical. And when I had to treat a patient, in front of the patient, she told the patient what I was going to do wasn't going to work. Now, I had to maintain my cool and my professionalism, and um, I excused myself, and I asked a nurse supervisor to come over and uh, bring this woman over. We addressed it, and I had to educate her. Like, I think you need to be educated. You're a bright young man. You know, we share the same birthday, um, and the more you learn, the more you'll understand, but to just shoot it down, like, you know, starting at infancy or toddler stage is not right. Remember, it's, it's really not manipulation. It's a specific adjustment aim to um, put the bone back in place and take the pressure off the nerve. I have many patients that tell me with their older children, toddler and um, um, preteen and teenagers, how it helps them with their ADD, ADHD. If it helps them, it's great. Bob, a couple of things here, uh, because uh, I, I don't doubt the uh, chiropractic success stories, but I, I, because I can tell you, just in uh, the one or two experiences I had uh, with a chiropractor, it was very positive, and I mentioned my wife's situation. The 13-year-old and uh, the, the other instance, the child that had the bedwetting, I, uh, I am, you know, I'll be a believer in that. I think there are def- definitely some results to be had. I have two, two main questions. One, what about what this... Uh, this doctor that I cited, Dr. Vanderlist at uh, University of California, Davis, is saying about the differences between a, a an, an adult and a baby's physiology and that because a baby's physiology is so much more different that you do really risk an adverse injury by even a mild uh, pediatric uh, chiropractic manipulation. What do you what do you say to that? I don't know her background, okay, but uh, a baby, all their, you know, bones and cartilage, it's all in its, you know, developmental stages. A chiropractor is not going to rack these bones out, okay? They're going to be gentle and specific with the adjustment, okay? I mean, my goodness gracious, there are people at the racetrack that want the horses adjusted. I even adjust my dog, you know? Now, with Kevin Sorbo, anytime, um, Frank, I get a patient on the table that's going to resist me and give me any kind of hesitancy, 
do you honestly think I'm going to go in there and I'm going to give them a, a real strong, specific adjustment? Right. Well, and that, and that leads not. me to Absolutely I, not. I, one other question that um, that I and you know what? Uh, stay in touch with me, Bob. Maybe email me and we can uh, maybe we'll do a whole longer segment on chiropractics in the future, because it sounds like you're as good of a, a, an ambassador for the cause as as anybody. One of the things that I've heard from everybody, uh, people that believe in chiropractors and people that are chiropractors is you have to be careful about the chiropractor that you go to because there are a lot of bad uh, chiropractors out there. Two-part question. One, how do you know if someone is a good chiropractor uh, or a bad chiropractor? And two, why are there any chiropractic naysayers? You know, there's nobody saying that – that pediatricians are witch doctors, but yet that term has almost become, um, you know, kind of almost synonymous in some quarters of the world with chiropractors. Why do chiropractors have such a bad reputation? Okay, those are many questions in one, um, that, that, and they're great, great questions. Okay, um, first of all, chiropractors, their level of education is going to be four years of college, four years of chiropractic school, even sometimes chiropractic school is even five years, and then we take a year, year and a half of internship. Okay, you have to be board certified. Um, you have to get your license. Okay, uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, physical exam where they watch you perform posiology and deliver the adjustment. Uh, you go through a series of questions, written and orally. So you've got to pass all this. They're not going to give you a license and a certificate if they feel that you are going to be incompetent and you know the definition of competence. And uh, so therefore, um, for anyone to say a good chiropractor, bad chiropractor, hey, listen, there are good and bad priests, good and bad whatever, all over the place. You know, you know when you go into someone's office by their demeanor, by how they treat you. You know, uh, I mean, I know with some of my fellow um, uh, healthcare providers, there are some of the things they say in the office to their patient that, to me, is an immediate turnoff. Okay, and I wouldn't choose that method or that delivery. You know, my job is to get you well. Okay, and I can't tell you how many treatments it might take to get you well. When you go to a physical therapist, you know, you don't get, and when you go to the gym, you don't get the body you want overnight. It takes time to get there. You know, because for example, you can go there, you can get an adjustment, and all of a sudden you go to the bathroom, you have a bowel movement, you can just, you know, misalign your spine just by doing that, just by sneezing. I mean, sometimes when I walk in the street, I'll see someone bare down like they're having a bowel movement, and I know that they've been to a chiropractor because the chiropractor told them how to constrain themselves so no vertebrae goes out of alignment to cause any kind of impingement to create a problem for you. But so I answer all your questions because you, 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 you asked me quite a few. Yeah, well, I I think that's probably all we have time for uh, this time around. But, Bob, email me and we'll stay in touch and maybe we can continue the conversation in the future. Uh, 800-848-9222. I want to get through a few other folks here before we get to the $1,000 minute. Uh, Matt is on Long Island. Hello, Matt. Hey, Frank Moreno. How are you? I'm doing okay. Thanks. You're the best. I always like listening to you at night. I appreciate that. Um, yeah, the, the, so the, the, the chiropractor the, the question, um, I've been to one, uh, a couple, but there's one that exercises a different uh, methodology that nobody's discussed. And um, he uses the, uh, you know, Black and Decker, believe it or not, Black and Decker. And he says, okay, let's go. You know, you get on the table, you do the black and decker, 
and you put the vibrator on, and it's a sander. It's a sander. That's what it is. Right. So, and as far as far as the children go, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. No, no. Go ahead. Finish your comment. Go ahead. That's what I was going to ask you about babies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. As far as the children go, I agree, a hundred percent. You cannot manipulate bone growth. Just let it happen. Mm. Mm. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. Even a little older child, I would not be as as adamantly opposed to this. But in the absence of any data or any study showing that there's some benefits to any of these ailments that these TikTok momfluencers are talking about, I would never do this. Never. Never. 800-848-9222. Rivke is in Brooklyn. Hello, Rivke. Yeah. Hi. Hi. Um, I- I once went to a chiropractor with a child, but the child was like nine, ten years old. She had a, a, a stiff neck for a very long time, and, and I was very lucky. I went to a very good chiropractor, and she helped, and child got better right away. But a baby, I would, you know, I would be worried about shaken baby syndrome because nowadays the, the, the hospitals and the doctors are after parents with any little thing that they find on a baby, they could consider it shaken baby syndrome. I would not do that. I would, a baby needs La Leche. The La Leche uh, uh, group helps tremendously with infants. They help the mother with nursing. Nursing is a very hard thing. It's something that the pediatricians cannot teach the the mother or help the mother. Pediatricians are great when the kids are sick and they have all kinds of illnesses. But when it comes to nursing an infant, this is a, um, a, a very age-old practice. Right. Uh, and no, only, yeah, only it, these ladies that have this La Leche group where they know things about nursing, they're amazing. Yeah, thank you, Rivki. You know, and, my, my sister-in-law is going through this now with her newborn Eric and uh, my mother-in-law, who gave birth to nine children, was very helpful in giving some uh, some nursing tips. Those of you that are holding, uh, please continue to hold, and then we will do the $1,000 Minute in just a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Exchange for everything you give to me. Read my mind, you know. 
The great Anita Baker giving you the best that I got. Uh, a great, great selection. Once again, by the birthday girl, 40 years old today, Diana Falzone. Happy birthday, Diana Falzone. Uh, by the way, uh, a great, great talent. You could find her on social media or just go to her website, uh, Diana Falzone. Dot, uh, I think it's, uh, I don't know. It's either dot com or dot net, right? I mean, just type Diana Falzone if you're interested. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. We're talking about this trend popularized on social media of parents taking their baby to the chiropractor. I think this is absolutely insane. I um, look again, I don't I'm hesitant to say anything's insane because if it works for you, great. But uh, and I'm not into exercising judgment, but I'm really concerned that if this trend continues to grow, which it appears to be doing, that this could lead to some babies getting hurt. And uh, I, I just that's just terrible, terrible. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to... We have a couple of Normans on the line. Uh, let me say hello first to Norman in Orange County. Hello, hello, Norman. Hi, Frank. How you doing? Great, thanks. Uh, my wife is a... Well, she's a chiropractor, a chiropractor in New York and an applied kinesiologist, which no one has mentioned before. And she treats all ages, and she has treated some uh, young babies, children, year to year to year. The difference between a AK, applied kinesiologist, and a chiropractor is the method of treatment. She doesn't crack backs or necks. Uh, she uses soft tissue manipulation. So, uh, give me that that um, AK again. It's it's what what is applied, AK? Applied kinesiologist. Kinesiologist, and right. it, what do they do exactly? I'm not I'm not clear. Okay, it's based on West uh, Eastern medicine. It's like uh, an example would be like um, acupuncture without the needles, where they find organs that are related to the muscles. They test everything before they do anything. That is that uh, incident that you brought up with, with that other doctor that put you down and all of a sudden your arm couldn't go down when you got straw in your arm. Right. That's that, that's similar to applied kinesiology. They use muscle testing. And you can use any muscle. So she used your muscle, which was your shoulder, with your arm, and it was weak. So she did some manipulation or rubbing, probably a rubbing technique, uh, like a massage technique, but it's more than that. It's actually basically lymphatic drainage. Interesting. And after you do that, the joint is now functioning better. So you think it's okay, you think it's safe to take a two-month-old baby to an AK? Yes, because they're not, what they do is, they use the mother as a surrogate tester because the baby can't do tests. Like they couldn't put the baby's arm up and see right. if the baby's arm is going to drop. So the mother touches the child, holding the child, 
and then she touches a certain point depending on the child's situation, whatever the symptom is, whatever the problem is. And she, this, this type of doctor has to really know the anatomy and the physiology and how everything functions. Interesting. Norman, thank you. I want to grab a couple of other people. There's another Norman on the line. Hello, Norman. Hello, dueling Normans. Um, That's right. Frank, um, okay, my mother's a chiropractor. Oh, well, was a chiropractor. She's passed away. And um, she was, I, I've been getting adjustments since I'm about, probably about eight, nine years old. Um, my mother uh, worked on young people. I don't, I don't recall her working with babies. Um, I, I think that that, but, you know, it's an old and respected science. Um, and it's not some kind of fly-by-night TikTok science. Uh, the type of adjustments that they would do on a person of your age or my age versus something that they would do on a baby, it's a whole other thing. It's a whole other... So you, you're, know, it's, you're, it's, you think it's, it's okay for parents to take babies? I think babies. it's okay, and mm-hmm. I, I probably had adjustments when I was months old. I just, you know, I don't recall. I had a strong right. back. I was able to go on with that back and deadlift 600 pounds, okay? <laughs> yeah, and I never I, had I any lo- back no, problems. Norman, I love that in all your calls these days, you're finding a way to mention how much you can bench press or deadlift. I mean, God bless you. You are the Chris of the Catskills. Uh, you're the Chris from the Catskills of weight training. Congratulations to you. Or the John from Brooklyn. Of, uh, of weight training. All right. Uh, those of you that are holding, uh, please continue to hold. We'll get to you. Meantime, uh, we're going to give somebody an opportunity to win $1,000. If you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. And if you are the seventh caller, we'll play uh, the $1,000 minute in a moment and see if you can answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. 800 848 Nine two two two. Meantime, Rick in New Jersey has been holding. Hello, Rick. Good morning, Frank. Morning. As a self-proclaimed cracker, I need to ask you uh, about neck cracking and then a, a comment about chiropractic. Okay. I when I crack my neck, I not only get a crack, I get a clunk. But what concerns me is after I do that, my vision is noticeably—I mean, noticeably—brighter, clearer. And colors are more vivid to the point where I make sure I do it before I watch TV. You can't. I'm very grateful for. No, I'm very grateful for that, but it can't be good, right? This is not good. I wouldn't think so. I mean, that's something I would definitely have checked out. Yeah, my doctor's like Doctor Bombay. You know, you tell him stuff, and he he just sloughs it off. I told him once I was hearing things because of the COVID. I think I hear the radio on, and it's not on. Things like that. And he said, "Well, when the voices tell you to." Do something wrong, call 911. Tell me your chiropractic comment, Rick. Well, my friend just went about three months ago to a chiropractor because his back, lower back was hurting. And he did something where he pulled on his legs. And the next day, he couldn't walk. His knees were blown out. He he could not walk. He had to go to a doctor and get cortisone shots so he could start working again. Now, I've never gone to one because of these stories, you know. Well, uh, thank you, Rick. I appreciate that. All right. Without further ado, it is time for. The Other Side of Midnight presents. It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank. 
Murano. All right. Now, uh, under the revised rules of uh, the $1,000 Minute, we are not giving away a consolation prize other than cash uh, temporarily. We are in the process, and we had a whole bunch of very good email conversations on this yesterday, of coming up with a new consolation prize. And hopefully uh, we will have that in place for next week. But for now, it's either money or nothing. Uh, let us say hello to Jim in Baltimore. Hello, Jim. Hello. By the way, I think it's called quackapracty, not chiropractic. I, I will count you in the non-chiropractor camp, Jim. Uh, all right, Jim, you know the rules, right? You've heard this contest before? No, I just oh, okay. heard it just a couple All right, minutes Okay, ago. so here's the deal. So I'm going to ask you 10 trivia questions. They're relatively easy. Uh, and if you can answer all 10 in 60 seconds, we're going to give you $1,000. And uh, if you get a question right, I'm just going to move on to the next question. I'm not going to sit and say, oh, congratulations, that's right. Uh, so I want to get through all 10 for your benefit, so we're going to move quickly. If you get a question wrong, you're going to hear an incorrect buzzer. The timer will start after I ask the first question. Simple enough? If you uh, if I get a question wrong, do I still have to be embarrassed by getting more wrong? Or do no, I no, no. Well, the, the contest will end, so this way I could save those questions for the next day. Let's go. All right. Okay. What insect makes honey? No, bees. What address bees. did President Biden give last night? State of the Union. How many sides does a Pentagon have? Five. Who wrote the novel The Time Machine? H.G. Wells. Who was John McCain's running mate in 2008? Sarah, uh, whatever her name is, from Alaska. Uh, come on, you, give me her last name. You very no. close. Oh. Can't do it. Oh, come on, you're on the tip of your, it's on the tip of your tongue, Sarah. Yeah, it ain't Huckabee, I know that. No, all right, I'm sorry. I don't think we could give you credit just for Sarah. <sighs> Um, so you got uh, you got five uh, five correct or oh, excuse me four and a half correct. Uh, th- I'm sorry, uh, Jim. No consolation prize for you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you want to comment on anything else that we're talking about, I do want to wish a happy birthday not only to uh, Rob Taub and Diana Falzone and my former bartender Davina Tomasula, who will, will play some of her bumper music selections tomorrow. But uh, there's a bunch of other interesting birthdays today. Nick Nolte, who I think is one of the greatest actors of all time, and I've loved him in everything he's ever been in. It's his birthday today, 82. The last thing I saw him in was a a TV show called Graves, where he plays an ex-president. I thought he was great on that show. He looked, and this was four or five years ago that that show was on, he looked like he was 100. I mean, he looks terrible for 82. You know how I was saying the other day how uh, I couldn't believe so-and-so was whatever age? I think people can't believe how young Nick Nolte is because he looks old. I mean, you could tell Nick Nolte has had some years of hard living. And I'm a fan of Nick Nolte, but it's his birthday today. And it would have been the birthday of two great actors. One was... Um, one was Academy Award winning actor Jack Lemon, and the other was um, a man that probably should have won an Academy Award, but he didn't do enough movies. Gary Coleman from Different Strokes, uh, also, of course, a former California gubernatorial candidate. You know who's 91 years of age today? John Williams, the famous composer. If you know of a famous musical score from a movie, 
chances are John Williams composed it. And also the the pro wrestler, the big show, Paul White, 51 years old today. And uh, he's really an incredible competitor. And uh, really, when he was the giant back in WCW, all the way to his big show tenure in the uh, WWE, he is uh, really an incredible wrestler. Speaking of pro wrestling, yesterday we neglected to mention the birthday of one of our youngest listeners, Jeffrey. I believe his last name is Fendrick because that's his mom's last name. Jeffrey, who turned 13 yesterday and is a big fan of pro wrestling. So here he's listening to me mention the birthdays yesterday. And he's probably waiting for his name to be mentioned. And because his mom was probably busy getting him a birthday gift or something, she did not informed me that it was his birthday, and I didn't want the kid to have to wait 364 days to have his birthday mentioned on the radio. So uh, these days, his favorite wrestler is uh, Cody Rhodes, and uh, he's hoping that he wins WrestleMania. I'm rooting for Cody Rhodes at WrestleMania, too. So uh, hopefully, uh, Jeffrey, we can you can use your birthday wish wisely, or you did use it wisely yesterday, for a Cody Rhodes title victory. Hopefully just it's a, uh, a good match. You know who else's birthday that was yesterday, and I have no one to blame. I can't blame Jody for this. Um, the only person I can arguably blame for this is Rich Rodabali, because Rich Rodabali sends out the lists of uh, birthdays. Yesterday, the it was the birthday, and I believe he was 91, of one of the most famous and greatest journalists ever. Yeah, it was not on the list that he sent out yesterday. And yet, all these email newsletters that I get of whose birthday it is, it was uh, the birthday of Gay Talese, who wrote the greatest entertainment article ever, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And uh, in a moment, I will play you a clip from an interview that I did with uh, Gay Talese uh, about nine years ago uh, about that article, Frank Sinatra Has a Cold. And it seems apropos today because my son Carmine, has a cold. I just feel so bad for him. Uh, his mother and I are trying to s- suck the mucus with a device out of his nose and hearing him s- struggle to breathe. I mean, he's in good spirits. He doesn't seem, he doesn't have a high fever or anything, but I feel so bad, this little boy, with this cold and hearing him try to breathe. And it's just uh, hearing how mucusy he is. I feel so bad. So, Frank Sinatra has a cold. Gay Talese, happy birthday to you. I'll play your clip in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Those of you that are holding, uh, please continue to hold. We'll try and do 15 seconds of fame straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. These are the musical stylings of Andy B. I did find uh, Andy's last name in one of the emails that he sent to me over the years. Andy was Andrew Bonafide, but I have not been able to find any obituary for him. Uh, But now that I have his last name, I'm going to try and get in touch with his family to see uh, he passed away this week from Parkinson's uh, to see if we can 
getting information on arrangements. All right. Yesterday, the 91st birthday of one of the greatest writers of all time, Gay Talese, his masterpiece, Frank Sinatra has a cold. Nine years ago, I talked to him about it. Well, after I had got the assignment, as you mentioned, from Esquire magazine in 1966, the presentation by the press agent Frank Sinatra to me was that Frank will talk to you, come out to L.A., and that Esquire had guaranteed Sinatra and his lawyer and press agent a cover story. It was definitely going to be on the cover of Esquire. So that's a big deal, for me at least. And But when I flew out to Los Angeles uh, the day after I arrived, expecting I'd see Sinatra very soon, maybe within the day or the next day, press agent called me at my hotel and said, you know, Frank has a cold. I said, oh, it's a shame. Um, I guess there'll be a couple of days. Well, he said, it might be longer. I said, oh. He said, you know, Frank is having second thoughts about this. I said, why? He said, he's a little worried that maybe you're writing about his alleged current connections to organized crime figures. He said, oh, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that at all. So, well, you know, Frank's lawyer's a little nervous about this because we hear Walter Cronkite has a show, CBS, soon this week, and there's, there's rumor that that's going to be part of the subject that Cronkite is dealing with. He said, look, I'm not Cronkite. I'm just here doing a piece. I was told it was a cover story. I'll fly. I'm here. I flew out here in good faith. I love Sinatra. I grew up listening to him on the old Lucky Strike hip parade, speaking radio, way back in the 1940s. And I have nothing but admiration, and I don't see any reason to upset anybody. And certainly I have no intention of dealing with the mafia or anything like that. Uh, yeah, just Sinatra, a man in his music. That's all I was interested in. And I said, that's, that's what is going to be the subject of an NBC uh, a spectacle um, called a Sinatra Man and His Music. A big show is scheduled. And Anyway, I said, well, let, let's think about it, said the press agent, but I uh, would be more comfortable with you if you showed us the piece. I said, oh, oh, I can't do that. I was talking to the press agent again. I can't do, you know, Esquire, the New York, no journal, journal whether it's the New York Times or Esquire, the New Yorker, could do that. Other side of midnight. This is 15 seconds of fame. Terry! Ray! E. Frank and Kevin, a.k.a. Steve from Manhattan on Sports Talk is hysterical. Hey, Frank, where'd you find your keys? <laughs> My wife's pocketbook. Fred! Hey, Frank, I heard Geppetto took Pinocchio for an adjustment. He came out as a pile of rubble. Andrea! Uh, I have a comment to make. With your wife, Sciatica, that is, those are big problems. She's in... Uh, Andrea, I can't, I can't hear... I, I can't make out what you're saying. I'm sorry. E. Frank! Yes, uh, I'm not Curtis Lee. What with his perspective on the city of New York, but I think... Frank Morano, good day! 